Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, December 15th, 843-661-0937 is our number. I am so ready for Christmas to get here so I can have some input on what our intros sound like. Oh, really? You have to wait for Christmas? Dude, you don't. I mean, I, 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 I mean I'm trying to create this brand of being, I mean, I, I have a major in badassery. Oh, and I, I'm so not you, you good like old Saint jo- Nick, jolly old Saint yeah, I mean, Nick I'm from Pamplico. I'm not Pamplico. jolly old Saint Nick. It doesn't match the image. But, is that well, what I mean, you're saying? It's, it's the it's the self portrayed image. I don't oh. know what the image is. I don't have any idea what the image is out there. <laughs> it's the way I perceive myself that matters. And yeah, I mean, yeah. the way I perceive myself is not consistent with the radio opening. And I think Freehold enjoys that kind of jab. That those yeah, northern I aggressors. Hope he does. No, here here's the deal. You ready? <laughs> those northern aggressors. They, they will they will try to fit in with politeness when they come down south, but deep in their soul, that there's still a a sense of division, rip. That there's still some mm-hmm. that there's some element of um uh, I don't want it's not about the civil war. I mean it's just about attitude and approaches and um personas, um the way we live our. Free all. Let me ask you this. I'll put you on the spot first thing this morning. What was the biggest adjustment you had to make when you came? Well, let me let me ask you this. What is the biggest difference? in the southern way of life and the northern aggressive way of life once you came down south? Uh, two things. Okay. Um, waiting 25 minutes um, to you know, pay in line to get a coffee. Okay. That drives me insane. Okay. <laughs> what do you do? Steal it, it up it, north? And, and the other thing, you know. It is faster, it's apparently. quick. Um, and well, the other thing, are. this is something that bothers me, and uh, I don't know if I should say this, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> so um, here's the thing. You say that Northerners are, we're not polite. It's its not that we're not polite. We're just in a hurry to do things. Here's the thing that Southerners do that I can't stand. If I'm waiting in line at a store or shopping or whatever, they try to talk to you. <laughs> Leave me alone. I don't know. I don't care. He's Your right. joke is not funny. Yeah. He's right. I don't care. Stop that. Southerners, stop that. I don't want that. Don't talk to me. <laughs> we, um, we'll be at the beach. My wife and I'll be at the beach. I mean, my kids are off and about, I mean, they're not with us anywhere near as much as, and we kind of like it. I mean, they're, they're not with us anywhere near as much as they were, you know, before they got kind of, kind of, I mean, my daughter's my baby and she's a sophomore in college. My boys are out on their own doing their thing. Um, and, um, we'll, we'll, you know, put our umbrella up. We'll put a chair up, got a cooler, got a, a Bluetooth speaker. And I'm sitting there on the beach with her. She loves it. I like it. I mean, she loves it. I like it. And the fact that she loves it makes me like it even more and more and more. Because, you know, in a marriage, you got to grow on one another after a while. <laughs> and um, and and somebody will set up so. tent. Somebody will set up camp beside me, and my wife will famously say, I'll look at a – they'll have a Gamecock on their cooler. So we've already got something in common. You know what I mean? We hadn't said a word to one another. They're they're, they're doing their thing with their uh, – I said, hey, you see that Gamecock on their cooler? She said, yeah, we'll probably eat bit. We'll probably be eating dinner with them <laughs> sometimes tonight. Because I just. Because you're it, Mr. Talking. Well, I mean, it's a Southern thing, man. How you doing? You know, what's going on? You got that Gamecock on that cooler. And next thing you know, they're talking about, well, I went to Nebraska. I did too. Where'd you sit? Section Y. Is that Section Z? I'm going to imagine the, you know, the, the coincidental nature of our, you know what I'm saying. So, so you're right. When, when I go up north, and I haven't been up in a while, but when I go up north, it is more, it's, 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 it's a, it's a more hurried way of life. I mean, it just is. But but I argue, um, Freehold, that when you've got that many millions of people in that few of acres of land, it's it's a little bit of a um, it's a survival free for all to some way, shape, or form. I mean, I got to get from here to there, you know. But I don't have a whole lot of time to spare. The Southern way of life is more 
a little more laid back, but it is. Um, we're spread out a little bit more than um, the millions and millions and millions of people who live in these densely populated metropolitan areas up north. We don't have much of that. I mean, Atlanta would be a major metropolitan area. Um, Charlotte would be a major metropolitan area. Rev, is there another major metropolitan area within five hours of here? Um, I mean, there, there's no. not. In five hours, pretty good no. drive. And, and if you get in, I mean, Philadelphia, if you're five hours from Philadelphia, there's t- you know six or eight or ten multi-million. I mean, they wouldn't even consider Charlotte to be a major metropolitan area up north. I mean, they'd consider Atlanta to be because Atlanta's one of the ten biggest cities in America. But um, I mean, I'm thinking about the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville. I mean, that's a, I mean, I guess that's a major metropolitan area, but it's nothing like Philadelphia or New York or you know Washington D.C. And I guess when you live in that densely populated an area, it's it's a little bit of a survival fest every day. You know, I got to get from here to there, and from there to here, and from here to yonder. And it's, and it's a lot of mass transit. I'm mean, I got to get my coffee within two minutes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, but it's it. a lot. It's a lot of getting on some of these mass transit systems. You know, to get you to and fro. Uh, you know, I, I don't drive into the city. I catch the you know the uh, the train, or I catch yeah, the, the subway, train. or I catch the you know the um, the ferry boats. I mean, they're, they're, you know, you're moving a lot of people every day. And I think when you move that many people every day in that condensed an area, ain't a lot of time to be polite. <laughs> and congenial with one another i got to get where i'm getting and you got to get where you're getting um i would imagine you see some of the same people and some of those same routines every day and never know their name if that happened down south if somebody rode a bus or a train with someone every day for five years they would know every they'd be exchanging christmas presents by mail <laughs> and, and up north it's just a little bit different i think is what um is what freehold is saying so so rev's got something on his mind this morning you darn right I did. Yeah. I mean, when I said, hey, did you watch the press conference yesterday? I didn't watch it. I heard about it. So I went back on YouTube. Uh, imagine that. Went on YouTube and watched some of the excerpts I watched from the, the Shane I Beamer. I watched the whole thing. The hour long? On YouTube. Yeah, I, I, I didn't watch all of when the new OC talked. I mean, he, I saw him start taking the Q&A and then kind of went on and did something else. But I watched all of Beamer's part of that. I wanted to. And like you, I'd seen some expert excerpts and some comments during the day on social media. So I said, I wanted to see that. So I did. And Beamer was full of fire. Fire. Is he thin-skinned? I mean, college football coach. No, let me back up. Coaches in general are notoriously thin-skinned. Yeah. I I I didn't think he was thin-skinned. I just, in fact, I thought his amount of response was appropriate. In other words, he basically acknowledged he saw and heard all this chatter that's been going on and the the criticism whatever and and the criticism you received from the, some of the players that have been leaving and going the negativity into the portal. yeah i mean it's, it's to me the negativity is what frustrates him and i didn't take his response as thin-skinned but more, you're a gamecock fan more than it was a response and he was going to address it but you're a gamecock fan of course i am okay is he thin-skinned yes you think so yes okay Debo's thin-skinned Saban's thin-skinned. Remember when Nick Saban called out the Alabama students for leaving the games early? Mm-hmm. Every college football coach, and here's what we've done in America. We've convinced these guys that their job they're being paid to do is more important than it really is. <laughs> I mean, if a football coach is making $10 million a year, if you're not careful, he'll mistake it himself as someone curing cancer. You know what I mean? Or, or exporting democracy or one of these monumental jobs of the world. We've taken a, um, I don't want to say a menial occupation, because coaching college football is a hard job. It's a challenging job. It's a daunting job. It's a uh, it's a highly compensated job today. But I think coaches in general are, are offended when somebody insults, you know, whether or not they know what they're doing. 
And if you go back to Dabo, it, it, it doesn't take a lot for Dabo to go off on the media. It doesn't take a lot for Saban to go off on the media. Spurrier, remember the Ron Morris. You know, he accused um, Spurrier of poaching the oh, basketball yeah. team of Bruce Ellington. And Spurrier actually moved a press that conference. That was a classic. He said, here's what we're going to do. Yeah. I'm taking all you guys in there to get we got one, this negative guy in here. one-on-one interviews, and he's staying yeah. here. You know, I, we, we've got this negative guy in here, and I don't want to deal with his negative guy. And, you know, I <laughs> that, just think that was I, great. I think coaches are notoriously thin-skinned, and they need to toughen but up. But he, he's not allowed to fight back well, a little I'm sure bit? sure he is. But, I mean, well, because a media reporter said something negative about the program, or, or something could have been, uh, in other words, he's got um he's got all of these candidates lined up and he's settling for a line tight ends coach in, from Arkansas. I mean, it may be the best hire he's ever made. It may not be. I don't know. I don't have any idea how good a hire it is. You don't either. Nobody does. We can all speculate. We can all make assumptions that we know, but nobody knows whether that hire was a good hire or not. I just think football coaches in general are notoriously thin-skinned. I'm not talking about the high school football coach at Hannah Pamplico. But I'm talking about when you reach a certain level of football stardom as a coach, you don't believe your your crap sticks. <laughs> and if somebody challenges you, you take it personally. And I, I just – now, there's a counter-argument to be made. And I sap a call from the Post and Courier. I mean, imagine waking up every day with less and less influence of the world you function in. I mean, if you're a print media guy, if you work with the state newspaper, the Post and Courier, I mean, imagine – waking up every morning saying to yourself, I'm less relevant today than I was yesterday. And I'll be less relevant tomorrow than I... So it's kind of the perfect storm. you got the um, the Gene Sapikoffs of the world who write for the Post and Courier who are basically made millions of dollars in print media. Print media is dying on the vine. If you saw this or not, the Washington Post is laying off about 300 more employees. The New York Times is laying off about 220 employees. Um, I mean, do you want to know how powerful the Washington Post and, and New York Times once were? They've got their own unions. I mean, it's the New York Times Workers Union, the Washington Post Workers Union. So for years and years and years and years, these print media guys have been the person you don't want to cross swords with. You know, Beamer would say in, in, in days gone by, I don't want to make Sapikoff mad because he writes for the Post and Courier and they have millions of subscribers and he can move the meter on where this discourse heads. Now, all of a sudden, Beamer or Dabo say to the state writer or the Post and Courier writer, I can I can access more people than you can in a nanosecond. I've got a Twitter account, you know, with three million followers. You you write for a newspaper <laughs> that has twenty thousand subscribers. I mean, I can move the meter far better. So there's kind of a um. You, you've got one guy who's super paranoid, who is notoriously thin-skinned. You got another guy who does a job of trying to get to the bottom of whatever it is he's trying to report on. And, no, and people care less about his opinion today than they did yesterday and will care even less tomorrow uh, than they did today. But I did watch some of the excerpts, and uh, I think, you know, the um, the OC hire, I mean, the guy handled it. He quitted himself well. He, he was ready for the questions. The part I saw. The, the part that, that I got a little bit curious about, my daughter actually sent me a text that, hey, watch this. Beamer says that Dow Logans was offered multiple offensive coordinator jobs in the SEC. And when Dow Logans came to the podium to address the media and basically introduce himself to Gamecock fans, Gene Sapikoff said, is that true? You know, did you receive multiple offers? And Logan said, Shane Beamer's an honest man. You know, I'm not going. I thought that was inappropriate, Sapikoff, to me. Right. I mean, that, that's just a guy. But once again, he's probably a bit miserable in his own existence. Because he thought he was, I mean, Sapikoff remembers the day when people cared about what he said because we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have Facebook. 
We didn't have the internet. So if you wanted to know what was going on, Sepikov had somewhat of a, uh, not a monopoly, but he was a part of a, um, uh, a cartel of information givers. And, and if you wanted to know, okay, what's going on at Clemson, what's going on at South Carolina? I don't know. What did Gene Sepikov have to say? And, and my daughter will say, what did Gene Kep- Sepikov have to say after she says, what do these other 300 people have to say? You know, what, what did Gamecock Central have to say? What, what did um, the Big Spur have to say? What did um, Garnet, what, what did Tiger Net have to say? What did, you see where I'm headed? I mean, Sapikoff has been the guardian of information, and I'm talking about not Gene personally, but the Post and Courier and State newspaper have had a lot of influence in what the media narrative in, America, in South Carolina has been for the past 40 or 50 years, and all of a sudden, that, that influence has been so diluted, so watered down, and those guys don't like it. They don't like that the coach doesn't have to go to them to, to kind of, you know, disseminate what, hey, Gene, let me, let me tell you what we did. I mean, you know, let, let's work together. I mean, you don't want to hurt me. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to be in a battle with you. You don't, you know, let's have this cordial relationship. Um, you've got a job to do, and I get it, and I respect the job you're trying to do. Well, Shane doesn't have to do that now. Dabo doesn't have to do that now. They can go to Jason Priester or Chris Clark or Twitter or, or Facebook or Instagram, and they can get their message out and control the narrative much better than, than have it, you know, controlled or, or argued over by Gene Sapikoff or um or Phil Kornbluth for that matter. And, good, like, and uh, Phil likes to play that role well, sometimes. I mean, Phil he's likes be, to be the heavy. He, he wants to be the reporter and he asked the question about Satterfield during that uh, that conference that Shane didn't really appreciate either. He's like, We didn't part ways, what are you talking about? But there was a day the coach didn't want to get crossed up with the rider at the state or the rider at Post and Courier. Uh but because once again they had a lot of sway. They controlled a lot of the narrative. They don't control much of the narrative now. Dabo knows that. Beamer knows that. They know that those two coaches are smart enough to know that they can control the narrative if they choose. And let me ask you a question. If you could control the narrative or not control the narrative, which um which would you try you to do? You always want to be of in control. Course, you want to be in control of the narrative. 843-661. And I'll just say this. I just like seeing our coach have a little fight. That's all. I what didn't he, think he was thin-skinned. He came out. He was a little bit aggressive, addressed the issues, and say, let's get down to business. Shane's motivation is to change the culture. I mean, obviously, they got to get better players. they got to win more games. they got to compete for championships. But at the end of the day, his priority, his number one objective is to stop with the doom and gloom, stop with the naysayers. You know, Gamecock fans, don't go to the game crossing your fingers hoping we win. Let's go to the game expecting to win. And that's kind of a... um. I mean, that's a newfangled situation for South South Carolina fans. I've been one all my life. Uh, the majority of times when we go play a top 15 team, I've got my fingers crossed, you know, and said a prayer to God. God, I mean, if you're fair, we've lost a lot more of these than we've won. <laughs> so, so, so throw us a bone this time, God. Well, I mean, Shane's trying to say we got to stop with all this negativity. Um, when, when we catch a bad break, I'll give an example. Um, South Carolina right now has fewer players in the transfer portal than anybody except Vanderbilt. Nobody wants their players. Uh, Vanderbilt or maybe, I think there's a couple of other schools. Might have been an Ole Miss. Uh, Lane Kiff has done a good job of holding on to his. Anyway, um, they're doing better than average when it comes to um, you know losing players at the transfer portal. And if you go to the Gamecock websites, all it is is, I mean, the sky's falling. I mean, we lost this kid and that kid. and another. Well, I mean, it's the new normal. You're going to lose kids. I mean, there's something called a transfer portal. I mean, it's football free agency. That there's nothing you can do about it. I argued with not argued. I debated with a Clemson fan yesterday at a um at one of our sponsors at Schofields. I mean, I bumped into someone, big Clemson fan, and they, he doesn't like it. I don't like it, but we said it just it is what it is. 
And if you think you're going to run your program and not lose any players to the transfer portal, you'll stay miserable. I mean, you will never be happy because kids are going to do what kids do. You know what kids do? Whatever they want to. <laughs> and we normally don't, you know, don't. Uh, the, the, um, the maturity index is not where it needs to be when some of these young kids uh, make their decision. But I think to Shane's point, with Sapikoff and Kornblut, and, and I guess to his fan base, he's trying to create a more positive atmosphere instead of the traditional negativity that I've been uh, very much uh, associated with. I mean, I, I can do it very easily saying, this is going to suck when LSU comes to town. You know what I mean? Or or playing Clemson, man. I mean, they, they've got all these linemen. and uh, No, but it, it's, you know, every day is the 4th of July. And um, I'll tell you, the, the Clemson fan friend of mine actually agreed at how much Beamer reminded him of Dabo with the early days. I mean, Dabo came across as a bit hokey. You know what I mean? A, a little bit naive, a little bit uh, full of it. Well, I mean, Beamer's being accused of some of those same things. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, if the next 15 years of Gamecock football looks like the last 15 of Clemson's, sign me up. <laughs> put me on the hokey train. Can, cannot deny. <laughs> yeah, put me on the hokey yep. Where do I write my check? That, that's what I want to know. 843-661-0937. Done with sports. Let's start. Um, got to take a break here, but let's start our next segment with something the Fed didn't say yesterday that should make us more nervous than what they did Uh-oh. say yesterday. Take a break. Back in a minute. I'm not a Keynesian economist. I'm not a classical liberal economist. I'm not a modern modern monetary theorist economist. I'm not an economist at all. But I've run a business all of my adult life. And I understand math. And I understand what doesn't work and what does work in general. Now, there's specifics and and, and kind of one-offs that'll get you confusing. But, but business people understand that when a balance sheet looks as desperate as America's does, there's going to be some pain in store. And, and yesterday, Jerome Powell um, gave a lot of comments. He him and hauled about a lot of different things. But when he was um, when, when he was talking about changing the 2% inflation target, I knew we were going to get here. I mean, historically, the Fed has said our, our target uh, inflation rate is 2%. Now, once again, they've manipulated the inflation rate. They don't include food. They don't inc- include fuel. We know that the, 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 the inflation rate has been higher than 2%. But, but yesterday was the first time that I've ever heard him say about, you know, we're not going to consider changing the 2% target rate under any circumstance. But then he went on to say a lot of other things um, that led me to believe there are, there are discussions behind the scenes about whether or not 2% target rate is, is, is attainable. It's, it's not. I mean, guys, we punch so much liquidity into this economy in the name of whatever. I mean, I don't have any idea. Um, Freehold gave me this rundown list from Fox, and we didn't choose to talk to him this morning, but there was a financial planner. States now are sending out inflation protection checks. I mean, the states are in as desperate a place as the country. I'm talking about California, New York. Some of these liberal states are sending out checks in the mail funded by, you know, we the people in the name of inflation uh, basically an inflation offset hmm. here. Inflation's cost you an extra $350 a month. You know, it's, it's kind of our fault. I mean, the government created all this rampant inflation. So we're going to make it up to you by sending you send six weeks of that margin. You know, whatever it did cost to live and what it does cost to live. Here's where we're headed. And, and this is deeply concerning to me because once again, the fed has never, ever talked about changing the 2% target rate until yesterday when Powell said, and I quote, 
We're not going to consider that under any circumstances. BS. Because for the next 15 minutes, he talked about, um, I'll give you an example. It may be a longer run project at some time. Uh, but that's dog whistle. Uh, but the guy's talking dog whistle, and he's basically admitting that we are out of control in our spending. Congress has showed, shown no willingness to address this in any way, shape, or form. I'm back to debt. The Before the 50 basis point raised yesterday, I mean, they raised the rate by 50 basis points yesterday, the, the projected interest on debt for the United States of America was $830 billion. I didn't say servicing debt. I said interest on debt. So when you add the 50 basis points and you add the expected increase in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security spending, 2024, by, the, by this time next year, the projection will be north of $1 trillion in debt payment, not once again, not paying the principal, simply to service the debt with an interest-only payment in excess of $1 trillion. Say that with me. I mean, Rev, trillion is? It's a thousand billion. And a billion is? A thousand million. Okay. I mean, just stew on that for a second, guys. I mean, a, a trillion seconds ago, there was no Jesus Christ. I mean, saber-toothed tigers, we believe, roamed the planet Earth. And we borrowed so much money and run up such a debt that we're going to spend $1 trillion a year in interest payments alone. There's no way 2% is a target rate. The new normal for inflation is probably 4 4 5%. But Fauci said stay home. The government said lock down, get vaccinated, live your life with a high degree of fear. We've got your back. Don't you worry about it. Because you can't go to work, because you can't run your business, we've got this Federal Reserve that has a, it's not a printing press, it's a digital printing press. I mean, they digitally create money, and we'll make sure everything's okay. The insanity of that, I mean, the, the absolute insanity to believe that we could have a pandemic and not pay a financial consequence. We could just simply print money and throw it over here and send it over there. And I mean, how much do you need over here? It, it, the, the, and so we're in 2020. It's 830 billion today. I mean, there, there's some clear, there's some accounting going on. 830 billion. By the time we raised the, the, once again, he raised the basis point, 50 basis point hike yesterday. Combine that with the expected increases of just Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, we're north of $1 trillion in interest payment alone, and we profess to be a superpower. BS. Superpowers aren't that irresponsible, period. And once again, guys, we can debate a lot of things in this country, but until we, get, uh, until we enter adulthood, as it relates to the debt and energy, I mean, th th this downward trajectory, this nation in decline will, will increase rapidly, far more rapidly than you and I can imagine. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning. Yeah. We tried to get the person that caught started off, started fire to put it out. And that's the insanity of it. The insanity of it is any of us to believe for one second that they didn't know this was going to happen. So, again, you know, and where are, and, and right now they're talking about having another omnibus spending bill with the help of Republicans. Every damn thing, I'm wearing this out, but until people realize it, the 
politicians are doing this on purpose. They are not our friends. They are, and where are the Republicans? You had, I mean, you did have, you guys, and what did Mark Stafford, he was talking about it, and everybody said he was a nutcase. So there you go. Everybody that talked about ivermectin, well, they're a nutcase. Everybody that said not to wear masks, well, they're a nutcase. Everybody that says that transgender people at the uh, White House running nuclear or uh, whatever, you know, it's kind of silly. You know, because they're, they're just, I mean, the bottom line is a man going around wearing a dress, you got to just be honest and say, he's got a screw loose somewhere. But nobody's got the guts to say that because they say, oh, he's terrible. But yeah, read the Bible. A man, a man is not dressed like a woman, and women don't go around need to dress like that, old love, like they're some kind of a man either. I mean, all of this stuff is silly, and everybody's scared to call it silly, and all of it's on purpose. And everybody's scared to say it's on purpose. But there are a lot of people saying that. And I'll tell you another thing I came to a conclusion last night. I said, you know, Breeze, you're a damn sissy. And I'll tell you what, if I'm a sissy, I don't know what the rest of the people are, but we got real problems. Ain't a tough guy left around here anymore. They think he's tough, but he ain't dang old tough. Like, you know, he ain't 1860 stuff. That's for damn sure. And uh, we get exactly what we deserve. And if they're going on, and you know, I'll tell you another thing, too. And, you know, I think I was sitting there thinking about this the other day. I said, I, I'm walking around wearing a, a Citadel sweatshirt, and I went through those away. I said, other than promoting my own business, I think all of my T-shirts are going to have a picture of Jesus on it. It beats the heck out of that going walking around with a Carolina, Clemson, or Georgia thing. Because those guys, they they as far away from God as you can get. And for that matter, wearing a Nike T-shirt is the same damn thing. So I'll tell you what, we need to do. I, I, well, I don't know what the hell we need to do. Well, I, I'll tell you what we do. We better be bad. We better be bad. And I'll tell you another thing, too. Um, and you need to call people on it right off the bat. And I'll tell you also, if you don't like if you don't like the way we do things out here, you know, we would love for you all to leave every damn last one of you. I said, you know, it's nice to have a few Yankees come out here to think the way we do. But but you know what? I mean, I'm not going to sit there and say, hey, kid, let's be and you retire up to New York City and then go over there and tell them, hey, man, we wish y'all would do things more like we do it down south. And I wish you'd think like we do down south. I wish you boys would try loving Jesus a little bit more like we do down south. I mean, they don't, you know, well, where the hell would anybody want to come somewhere where they ain't wanted in the first place? These Yankees have gotten out here in South Carolina have done more damage in the past 20 years than Sherman ever, ever did during the Civil War. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that, my man. Uh, touched on a lot of subjects there. Bill Ackman is one of these financial gurus from the big hedge fund. I mean, he's in the news. He's a, a frequent guest on CNBC. I mean, he, he, he operates at a far different level than I do, obviously understanding the economy, reacting to what the Fed says. I mean, he tweeted after... Um, after Powell addressed or gave the, um, you know, the Fed report, Agman said the, um, and he does this Twitter thing, the at Federal Reserve 2% inflation target is no longer credible. Deglobalization, the transition alter- alter- alternative energy, the need to pay workers more, lower risk, shorter supply chains are all inflationary. The Fed, the Fed cannot change its target now, but will likely do so in the future. So that's the point I'm trying to make. That's where we're headed. I mean, we're going to normalize 4 or 5% inflation. I mean, that's just the world we're going to live in. Um, and I think it really and truly, and here's where I go down a the conspiracy theory road, it really leads me down the road of believing 
that this is to see a decline in ownership, home ownership. Remember, we're going to all be renters. You're not going to own anything, and you're going to love it. I think this is the beginning of this modern monetary theory that is going to be so inflationary, people can't buy homes. I mean, the only answer to this, Reb, I mean, if we're serious about it, we're not, but if we were, we'd raise the Fed rate by 300 basis points, houses would go down by 30%, food would go down by 50%, labor would get back in line, but that would be such a tremendous shock to the economy. I mean, the world wouldn't be the same after that. But it's the only way to, I mean, if we're serious now, but once again, we're not serious about it because we got too many combined interests. We got people who need the government to work a certain way. We got very influential businesses that require debt and the government to operate the way it does operate. How many businesses benefited from, uh, I mean, there, there's so many tax advantages now that they cost the American government, you know, a certain amount of revenue. I mean, we've got, um, the PPP plan, the ERC plan, the DOW plan, and all those were funded by the federal government. I'm not saying they're all bad plans, but they contribute to the debt. They were funded by the COVID relief money. So, so all of a sudden now, um, we, we've got 30 semi trillion dollars in debt. We're spending about a trillion after next year. We're going to spend about a trillion dollars in, in just servicing, not the debt. Once again, guys, we're not paying off the debt. But the debt we're, we're, you've got a credit card that's maxed out. You've got another one that's not. So you're taking the one that's not maxed out, putting debt on it to pay off the one that is maxed out. I mean, you're not buying groceries. You're not buying it. You're not making a car payment. I mean, you're basically, you've got two credit cards. One is maxed out, one's not. So so whatever the line of credit is, you let's say your minimum payment on the one that's maxed out is $1,000 a month. And you've got a $20,000 line of credit on the other credit card. And you've only got five on it. I mean, you're going to borrow the $1,000 of the credit card. You're not buying groceries with it. You're not going on vacations with it. You're just borrowing the money to service the debt on the other credit card that you do have maxed out. How is that sustainable? It's simply not. But that's how we're operating the country today. And the the result is going to be rampant inflation, long-term inflation, generational inflation, and there's not going to be a decline. The only way to address it is to shock the nation back to its senses by raising the Fed rate somewhere in the neighborhood of 300, 400 basis points. Homes would go down by 30 or 35%. Mine and yours would be worth 30% less tomorrow than it would be today. Um, food would go down 40 or 50%. You'd have tremendous shocks. to the, But that's where we've gotten ourselves. And I've always said that I don't know what the debt number is that shocks the world. I don't. But once the, once the interest payment exceeded a trillion dollars, that there's got to be something there. I mean, somebody somewhere, a lot brighter than I, has to say, guys, did you know our interest payment is a trillion dollars a year? Forget the debt for a second. Just to keep the debt in good standing, just to service the interest on the debt, is $1 trillion a year and nobody's doing anything about it. There's not a conversation in Washington today on the record dealing with the debt. Instead, we're talking about sequestration and omnibus spending, and should we do this, and McCarthy calling McConnell out about not doing his job as Senate Minority Leader. It's as if the the math doesn't matter in Washington. And at some point in time, guys, the math is going to matter. And I think what's going to be, it's going to be so, have such a negative impact on our world is when the, the anticipated rate of inflation is about two or three times higher than we expected. And there's not going to be a decline in inflation. I mean, this is, a, this is where we are today. 
Um, we were talking yesterday about this on season of giving. And one thing the ladies that do the shopping have said is $1,000 just doesn't go anywhere near as far this year as it did last year. I mean, that's, that's rampant. That's all across the board. So even even charities, and that's what this is, a season, a season of giving is raising money to help these families have Christmases they never imagined. And these ladies are so dedicated, they take time out of their busy schedules, go shopping at night for six families that aren't going to have much of a Christmas if we don't come through. Well, the ladies, the one thing they've said is, wow, it's a whole lot more expensive this year than it was last. It's going to be more expensive next year and the next year and the next year. Two doesn't sound, four doesn't sound like a lot more than two. It's twice as much for you folks in Pamplico. <laughs> it's 100% more. Two and four, well, that's only two points. No, it's 100%. It's twice as much. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Someone held on during that segment. Let's go to the phone. Be respectful of their time. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. I don't know where you guys are getting your figures from, but the president himself has said that net income is actually up and inflation is zero. And people have more money than they've ever had, and the unemployment rate is near zero. And our wondrous uh, press secretary is confirming all of, of that information. And you know that they wouldn't lie about things like that. So um, I just think that uh, things are hunky-dory, and, and we just need to get back to investigating January 6th. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. <laughs> Okay, uh, Charles called me out. I made it all up. Yeah, right. I've made it all up. <laughs> none of what I've said for the last 10 years has been true. Trust the president. Either you are or the president. Trust is. Congress. Trust the um, trust the, the press secretary. Um, it's either me or the black lesbian. you got to make your mind up. Who do you believe in? Who do you trust in? Uh, the white guy from South Carolina? The white, straight, Republican uh, male? I mean, I know the uh, the stereotype or the black lesbian who disseminates information at the federal level with far more credibility than I do. Um, but who do you trust? I mean, is everything okay or is everything not? And I do hear some um, some sarcasm mm. in Charles from Lamar's voice <laughs> Did the president not, when he not said say that. the other day, he said, yeah, there's been some inflation, but wages have grown much higher than prices well, have. Let me, let me say did this. Did he not say that? He did say that. And, and nobody checks him on it because he's in bed with the media. And, you know, we talk a lot about the media running interference and propagandizing on behalf of the administration. Here's the problem with Biden. Biden doesn't know any better. You know, we've debated whether he's morally bankrupt. I mean, I think he is. I mean, I believe the man is an absolute total political crook. I think the the, the family, the Biden family, has used politics like, like the Sicilians used the mafia. I mean, I think it's just the nature of the way they do business. Um, they believe they're immune to the realities of, you know, political uh, favoring because they've been in it so long. I mean, Biden got to Senate in the 70s and... I mean, he's seen, you know, presidents come and go and administrations come and go and Supreme Court nominating processes come and go. And and there's some entitlement that I think he, he believes he's, I mean, he's, this sort of influence should be accessible to someone like Joe Biden because I've been there for so long. Um, he's a lightweight. I mean, he's an intellectual lightweight. 
I mean, he's been fundamentally dishonest about his uh, his education. And I mean, remember the story, he graduated in the top one third of his law class and we find out he was almost dead last. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, you know, I, I'll, I'd never believed that Biden was morally bankrupt until recently. And I'm sure of it. I mean, I've always thought he was a political lightweight and intellectually not very sophisticated at all. Um, I mean, once again, he, he, he went down the right road. I mean, he figured out a way to be a U.S. senator. That, that's the pathway to prosperity, not public service, but prosperity. Um, but yeah, but do you, do you believe, you know, Biden and the black lesbian, or do you believe radio show hosts around the country? I'm not making this stuff up. I mean, the Washington Post actually has an article reporting what the debt is, what the debt will be, what the service on that debt is, what the service on that debt will be. And we're not talking about principal and interest. We're just talking about interest on debt only will be in excess of a trillion dollars. How many of you believe inflation's at zero? Rev and I were talking during the break about Christmas shopping. When I was a kid, and I understand that that was a long time ago. Well, I I mean, it wasn't eons ago. But when I was a kid, my mom and dad, my mom in particular, my dad's work running a business, but my mom would give my brother and I, my brother and I are 17 months apart. My mom would give those catalogs, the the JCPenney's and Sears catalog would come in the mail. And that was like the craziest thing you could imagine. I mean, we've got this book that my mom's going to let us open and circle with crayons. This is pre-Sharpie. Circle with crayons, what it was you wanted. And my brother and I would collaborate on a racetrack because both of us would play with the racetrack. And my mom would say, your, your budget is $100. And we were middle class. I mean, my dad had started a business. We were doing okay. I mean, I didn't have any idea what we were doing. I mean, I knew we lived okay, never hungry, and always, you know, need, got where I needed to be on time. I had a re- real responsible mom as a homemaker. My mom worked part-time at the post office. My dad was full-time employed, you know, just starting a business, starting his business in in 1963, I was born in 1963. Um, so by the time I'm six or seven, you know, he's at the beginnings of, um, of running what he thought was going to be a successful uh, business. But my mom would sit us down and we'd circle $100, you know, and we could get uh, an abundance of things. I mean, I can remember waking up on Christmas morning and I mean, there would be presents everywhere for a hundred bucks. My brother gets a hundred, I get a hundred. Rev and I were talking about $100 today wouldn't, I mean, just think about what it would. I mean, you know, and there are people out there that, that still live on that budget. And, and God bless you for being able, being able to figure out that. But, but to suggest that inflation is zero and everything's hunky-dory and, um, you know, there's nothing to see here, it's absurd. But, but once again, guys, if you were Joe Biden and you were the Biden administration and you knew the media was in your hip pocket, and you knew nobody would antagonize you about anything you say. Nobody would challenge you. Why wouldn't you lie? I mean, th- th- there's a bent gene in all of us that seeks the easy way out. It's in me. It's in you. It's in everybody. It's a little bit like water. I mean, water follows the path of least resistance. Human beings are similar to that. By nature, all of us have that genetic capability. I didn't say makeup because some of us challenge ourselves. But, but when you are saying things as irresponsible and inaccurate as Biden says, but nobody holds you into account, why would you keep saying everything's okay? I mean, why would you say, Hey guys, we got big problems, but we're on it. I mean, we're trying hard. Inflation's out of control. The debt's out of control. There's no way we can get off fossil fuels in 10 years, but we're ambitious and we're trying hard to make life better. Your interaction with government better as an American citizen. I mean, why would you go there? When all you got to do is say inflation zero, nothing to see here. The debt's under control. We may even send out some um, some stimulus checks again during Christmas because we know 
See, it's kind of oxymoronic. I mean, it's a little bit contradictory, not oxymoronic, a little bit contradictory to say inflation is zero, but we're sending out this inflation-adjusted check in California. I mean, Gavin Newsom took some of the federal funds and is basically asking you know, legislation, asking for legislation that allows him to send the money to people because inflation is rampant. I mean, it's, it's fairyland. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's craziness. It's nonsense. It's insane. And at some point in time, we'll deal with the devil. I don't know when that is. Um, uh, Joe said something a second ago, kind of interesting. What, when he said, you know, we elect these people. It, we make a decision to vote for these men and women to go to Congress and represent our interests, go to state and local government to represent our interest. I touched on something yesterday about weighted voting. Somebody called in yesterday, Rev. I think you'd left because you had a conference call at nine. Mm-hmm. But somebody called in yesterday and said, you know, what about somebody who doesn't? We're talking about city elections. Remember uh, a couple of days ago, we talked about city county consolidation and what would have to happen. You're talking about referendums and campaigns and, you know, a lot of other things. I mean, redistricting is a big part of this. But anyway, um, somebody called in and said, what about the person that lives in Lake City but owns a business? The biggest investment in their life is in Florence, the city of Florence. They leave Lake City where they vote and live. They drive to the city of Florence where they have a, a multi-million dollar business and all sorts of business interests. Why aren't they allowed as a business owner in the city to vote? But because once again, they, they've got, let's say they got three locations, 40 employees, a million dollar payroll, property taxes, business licensing fees, but they're not allowed to vote where their biggest asset is located. And, and I went down the road of weighted voting. I mean, I've always felt that is a worthy conversation of consideration, whether or not we should weight votes. I mean, we do it in boards. I mean, he's a voting member of the board. He's a non-voting member of the board. Um, the United Nations, who contrib- I mean, who makes the biggest contribution? Should they be allowed to vote? Should the U.S. have three-to-one vote to the United Nations resolutions? I mean, we kind of fund 30% of its budget. Why is, a, um, why is the vote from Ecuador equal to the vote from the United States of America? I mean, I get representative republics and one man, one vote and um, equality and parity. And I, I understand all that. Somebody called in later and said, we do have weighted voting, Ken. You've even said it. You said that the likelihood of you getting in touch with your local political representative is better than mine. So, so and I agree with that. I mean, there is some degree of weightiness in the voting. I mean, um, I've been in politics 20 years I do have a, a list of contacts that I can call on if there's an issue that arises that I need um, I don't know, some consideration given. But, but have we gotten to a point? I mean, if, if you're thinking about it, guys, use the, use the analogy more in the wagon than pushing or pulling the wagon. When they're more in the wagon, if I'm riding in the wagon, why do I give a damn what the debt is? I mean, I'm never going to pay it back. It's not my baby. I mean, I don't think about inflation. I don't think about the plight of the country. I don't think about conservative principles. of You've already told me I can get in the wagon and ride, and I ain't getting out. I mean, there's no way you're getting me out of this wagon because life's pretty good. It's not as good as the millionaire, but look at what the millionaire had to do. I mean, he had to go borrow money, build a business, uh, be nervous and worried and anxiety, I mean, anxious about everything under the sun. All I've done is ride in the wagon. And another person gets in the wagon, and another person gets in the wagon, and another person gets in the wagon. So we start talking about debt and modern monetary theory and, you know, uh, the future of a nation and can we pay our bills and uh, is this policy worth non-defense spending? Who in that wagon cares about any of that? Just don't mess with those 32 entitlement programs. Don't mess with those 17 means-tested 
programs. I'll ride in this wagon for as long as you allow me to ride in this wagon. In fact, we're to the point now my kids are riding in this wagon. So, so why would we change that? I mean, once again, if you've got more riding in the wagon than push, the people pushing and pulling the wagon are desperately concerned about debt. I mean, they stay up at night worrying about taxes. I mean, they're deeply bothered by local government or state government and their forced interaction. Why would someone riding in the wagon care any at all about any of that? If it blows up and the wagon goes away, what have I lost? It's these folks pushing and pulling that have so much at stake. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Hold that phone for just a second. We've got with us Great Television's Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Ken? We are doing well. There's somewhat of a disagreement in the Republican ranks about what to do with an omnibus bill. Um, it seems McConnell's sympathetic to passing a bill with, uh, with the Democrats. Kevin McCarthy, on the other hand, says, not so fast. Let's wait until the Republicans have control of the House. Is that a proper interpretation? That's a great interpretation. Kevin McCarthy, uh, who thinks he's going to be the next speaker, wants a seat at the table. He wants to determine what the federal spending looks like for the rest of the fiscal year. And he doesn't have a seat at the table because, uh, as you pointed out, uh, Republicans do not at this moment control the House of Representatives. So the House has already done what they need to do. It's up to the Senate now and Senate negotiators. I think they're going to get this done. I think that they're going to fund the government through the end of the fiscal year, which runs through September the 30th. And Kevin McCarthy is going to be very frustrated. Other House Republicans are going to be very frustrated because they will not have a say in this process. What is McConnell's motivation? I mean, you're there. I'm not. I mean, as a, as a Republican voter and someone who would like to see them wait, what is the argument McConnell makes, John? McConnell makes the argument that, look, we need to fund the federal government. It's going to be kicking the can down the road uh, with the House Republicans uh, a part of this process because it's going to be so much more difficult to find a common ground. It's going to be so much more difficult to find compromise in the new year on a variety of things, but certainly when it comes to the budget. So I think that's his primary issue. Also, for Mitch McConnell, he's very much concerned about keeping that funding at very high levels to help out Ukraine in their fight against Russia. And that is going to be included in this omnibus spending bill. I don't know if it's going to be the amount that President Biden requested, which is $37.7 billion. It's going to be a significant amount, uh, but that is also a concern for Mitch McConnell. John, I've served in local government and state government. We had balanced budget amendments. We could not deficit spend. There was certain uh, there were certain things we wanted to do and couldn't do. I read this morning or yesterday in the Washington Post that because of the 50 basis point increase yesterday from the Fed, uh, the projected increase in Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, the interest on debt in 2024 could be in excess of $1 trillion. Is anybody in Washington concerned about the Fed report and how much debt we're running up and what the cost of service that debt is going to be? Well, you know this term. There used to be this term in Washington, deficit hawks. And uh, those people were very prominent um, in terms of uh, trying to make certain that uh, federal uh, taxpayer money gets spent properly. Uh, and you see or hear fewer of those people these days. You certainly didn't hear them during the Trump years. Don't let them think that you know their, their voices were heard loud and clear during that time. And they're not heard now. 
uh, essentially they're kicking the can down the road and pushing that debt onto the next generation, you know, and they'll be responsible for all of the debt uh, that has been incurred by the federal government. John, could the re, I'm asking you to opine for a second, but could it be that neither party knows what to do? I mean, the debt is so massive. Servicing the debt is so expensive. Nobody wants to deal with it because nobody knows what to do. Well, they know what to do. And what I mean by that, Ken, is it would really cause a lot of pain and suffering to do what is necessary to get that under control. We're talking about controlling entitlement spending. And uh, as they say, here in the nation's capital, that's the third rail of American politics. You don't want to touch that. Uh, and so that's the reason why I, I don't think either party, Democrat or Republican, can get that part of the equation under control. Last question I want to touch on. The, the last thing college football fans want is an Ohio State-Michigan matchup. That's why uh, Michigan's <laughs> playing TCU and Ohio right. State's playing Georgia. Tell me what you'd like. That, right. The committee took that into account when they chose how to match those teams up. When I read the least li- the least interesting matchup is Biden Trump 2.0. Um, I mean, I, I read. I mean, I think USA Today had a poll, and I think uh, Monmouth may have had a poll. Uh, yeah. had a, but that is the least interesting matchup. It is. Trump is in. I mean, he says today there's the biggest announcement in. in the history of mankind. Yeah. Which I mean, that's a typical Trump <laughs> Trump announcement. But but yeah. what, what do we make of the American public saying thank you, but no thank you to Biden Trump 2.0? Well, let me first touch on some things that I'm surprised you didn't ask me about, Ken. Uh, first of all, Georgia is going to win the national championship. You didn't ask me that. All right. <laughs> I would agree with that. One. I would agree with that. Uh, the big announcement from Donald Trump, my speculation, he's rejoining Twitter. That's a big announcement from Donald Trump. I don't know if that's true or not, just my speculation. And as for the third thing, uh, I agree with you. It's going to be boring covering uh, Biden versus Trump if indeed that happens again. But Uh, Donald Trump, we know this for a fact, he's going to get some competition. uh, And you know the names, Ron DeSantis and uh, Mike Pompeo and Nikki Haley, uh, just to name three of them. And I I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, poll after poll indicates that within the Republican Party, it's not going to be a slam dunk for Donald Trump, you know, in 2024, like I think it essentially was in 2016. So, uh, it's going to be interesting race. Uh, I think he is the front runner. Donald Trump is. And for Joe Biden, he is going to announce in early 2023, I think likely that he will run uh, for another four year term uh, and he will not get challenged by anyone of prominence in the Democratic Party. So it's setting up to be uh, Trump versus Biden 2.0. But a lot can change between now and 2024. So we'll have to keep our eyes on that. No question about it. John, thank you for your time. We'll talk once more before Christmas, but um, but if something crazy happens that we don't connect next Thursday, um, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you and yours. Oh, thank you so much. You, you as well. Always great to talk to you. Have a great 2023 if we don't talk, and uh, it's been a great 2022 with you as well, Ken. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. John Decker, who is Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent. Why don't we say Great Television? They own WMBF, our, um, our partner in, uh, in media, as well as WIS, home of the fighting Gamecocks. 843-661-0937. Our number, let's go to the phone. Here's Bruno in Florence. Good morning, Bruno. I mean, good morning, gentlemen. Hey, hey I can't give, I forget what year, year it was, but not, not in a, uh, when, when a Greece uh, defaulted on their, on their loan because they had too, too many people um, when a government dime and not, not enough coming in. Where do you see us as far as that, that our ratio 
uh, government dying with uh, money coming in and um, how soon do you think we're we're going to be in serious trouble? Thank like you, Bruno. That. Appreciate it. But I think we're in serious trouble now. I mean, Greece did default on its loan. The one saving grace America has had is the dollar is still the preferred currency. There's still a demand for dollar. When nations run debt, when we buy oil, I mean, what is the global currency that oil is priced in? What is the global currency that federal, excuse me, the global debt is financed in? Some of the international uh, monetary funds. I mean, all of those are designated in dollars. So that's the one advantage we've had. That's our that's our saving grace. I mean, it really and truly is. If the if there ever if we ever have a dramatic decline in the in the the preference of a dollar, we're toast. We're smoked. I mean, there is no out. But but once again, we've leaned on basically. I mean, we don't have our fiscal house in order. But look at Greece, look at France, look at some of these other countries. How desperate they are. And once again, as long as there's a demand for dollar and we issue debt, and there's a market to buy that debt, we we can play the game. And once again, guys, when when the, when Bruno said, "When are we in trouble?" We're in trouble. I mean, we're in desperate trouble. I mean, there's going to be some hard days at some point in time in America's future dealing with our debt. Nothing is forever. I mean, we, maybe we've convinced ourselves in our American arrogance that we can get away with whatever we choose to because of our exceptional history, because how much we've changed the world in less than 250 years. That matters. I mean, there's no doubt about that. We're still the greatest country on the planet Earth, but we've not been serious about our fiscal restraint, our ability to, to, to monitor our finances will eventually cause draconian problems in American culture and society. And once again, what politicians going to run saying, vote for me and I'll stop giving you that? I mean, how many Medicaid recipients are there? 100 million. How many Medicare recipients are there? A lot. How many Social Security recipients? I get that they're not the same. And I'm not arguing they are. Medicare and Social Security are entitlements. But you paid in. I mean, they, they confiscated a portion of your pay. They were supposed to invest that. They never did. I mean, there is no Social Security lockbox or trust fund. I mean, it's a Ponzi scheme. Call it what you'd like. I mean, the money goes in, funds the money going out. They need young workers making money, paying taxes to honor the benefit. I mean, I get the funds not insolvent. But, but we're getting fewer and fewer workers for more and more retirees. Uh, you know, the pyramid's almost turned upside down. I mean, there was a day in America, it was a pretty sound proposition. Had a lot of people working and a few people receiving. Now you kind of turn that, that on pyramid upside down, you got fewer people working and more people receiving. I think when Social Security was implemented, you had about nine or ten workers per one um, eligible recipient. And now it's about, you know, 4.1 workers, quickly heading to three workers, quickly heading to two workers, there's nothing about our financial situation to be optimistic about. Nothing. There's not a single line item in our federal budget that you can honestly say, wow, we did a good job there. We did a pretty good job here. Look, look at how they ran that government agency or that department. And, um, and, and to the caller's point, when do we realize we have trouble? Serious people know we have trouble. The majority of you know we have trouble. Here's the question that none of us can come up with the answer to. What does trouble look like? What does America look like on the other side? Let's say we wake up. Um, let's wait after the bowl games. Let's say we wake up um, <laughs> January 3rd and, and everybody in the world says no to the dollar. 
In other words, the um the American uh, the the American I mean a lot of it's intra-government debt. I mean there's some of this loaning between government agencies, but the majority of government debt is publicly held. I mean it's it's held by we the people. It's held by you know countries around the world. What happens when we the people and countries around the world say I don't trust the government, I don't trust the U.S. government to be able to pay its debt back? There's not a demand for the dollar anymore. What happens when the Fed? Because because guys think about the model. I mean, here's how we're governing ourselves. You ready? The government appropriates money that it doesn't have. The Federal Reserve buys that debt that the government just appropriated with money they don't have. But they have the ability to digitally create money. That's our financial model. That's how we're governing the greatest country in the history of mankind. And you can't do that forever unless I'm wrong, unless modern monetary theory is real. Unless you can, if you control and print the, uh, the money, you can print as much as you choose to. I don't buy that. I don't believe that. We've seen what happened in the last couple of years. I mean, we try to print more money than we ever have, and stuff is twice as expensive as it was. I mean, the inflation consequence of putting so much liquidity into the economy, that's been our answer at every turn. What we've got to do is somebody's got to have the gumption the gall, the, the you know, the, the balls, share I say, to just tell people, no, you can't get Social Security at 65. I know what deal we made, but we can't honor that deal. We can't. How many businessmen or women have walked into a bank and said, you remember that pro forma I gave you a couple of years ago? I didn't envision this happening or that happening, and I need to revisit this loan because it's not working anymore. Is there a way we can work this out? Is there a way we can renegotiate some of the terms? I mean, the bank says yes or no, and you kind of negotiate from there. But somebody at the government, somebody serious in our federal government must look the American people in the eyes and say, all these promises we've made, we don't have the money to fund any of those. But to Bruno's point, it happens when the world says, I don't trust the United States and its ability to pay back its debt. As long as the dollar, it's the preferred currency, and there's a demand for that dollar. We, we can fake it. I mean, we can really skate for about as long as we choose to. But at some point in time, somebody's going to say no. And when it does, that house of cars tumbles down, and I don't have any idea what it looks like. I don't think anybody has any idea. But I know what it looks like when you print too much of it. I mean, we're seeing that now. Hyperinflation. I mean, we're going to end up with stagflation. High unemployment, high inflation, low interest rates. I mean, we're going back to low interest rates sooner or later. We're not going to have a choice. Now, when that is, probably 24, 25-ish, somewhere thereabout. But, but the only thing to do is to make major, major shifts in monetary policy and to endure uh, 15, 20 years of a lesser American dream. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there, give me another. I mean, somebody answer. I mean, am I wrong? 843-661-0937. If there's some esteemed economist out there who says I'm wrong, call in. Give me a better answer. But if we chose to address, what did John Decker just say? They know what to do. They just know how much pain it would bring about, how much hardship would ensue. It's hard for a politician to bring hardship to his people, to her people. And, and I'm telling you, at some point in time, America will face a 30-year period unlike any Americans have faced in modern history. I mean, there's been some tough days in America's early days, and then, you know, pre-Civil War, post-Civil We've had some rough periods of time. Uh, the, uh, the, the Depression of the 20s, I, I just think it pales as to what we've got coming our way, no matter what we do, because we've already accumulated or amassed 
$30 trillion in debt. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, uh, Ken, Ken, Dave, uh, yeah, I agree with you 100%. And this is so depressing uh, to listen to all this kind of stuff. But I'm going to spin in a little bit different direction. Uh, number number one, I got two points. Number one, uh, when you when you brought up when you're talking Mr. Decker and you said, okay, here's the third point. I said, okay, here it comes. He is going to throw the long bomb. And what did you do? You punted. And what I mean by, and I perhaps I've missed it in an earlier broadcast, but you said to us, I think last Thursday, you were not going to let Mr. Hook, Mr. Decker, off the hook with respect to his uh, comments about not knowing a dadgum thing about uh, Jim Baker. Um, so I don't know. So be interested in your response to that. The other thing, too, as you ended yesterday's show, very interesting line of discussion that you, we've gotten into, and you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you don't pay taxes in, in Florence, yet you have a big influence, you don't have a vote. So that, that was an interesting. That last caller called in, it really got me to thinking. And, and I sort of agree with him, and, you know, and we rant and rave about corporate lobbyists and their control over Washington. Well, they probably take the same attitude that they are making greater contributions. They, they, cre they create jobs uh, and opportunity and all that kind of stuff. And so they feel the same way, that they should have a greater voice in the, the government of the country, whereas, you know, y'all are talking more on a local level. So I'll hang up and just kind of listen to what you have to say. But I, I appreciate y'all so much and hope y'all have a Merry Christmas. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Merry Christmas to you as well. I did punt today because news is going to break next week. I've got a pretty good. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. There's okay. going to be some major, um, major developments in the Twitter story okay. between now and the next time John Decker and I don't bring John on to beat him up. I mean, John and I went at it a little bit last week, and we played that. We may play that again today to see what the callers talk or to to uh, for those who aren't familiar for what we talked about. Decker said last week that he knew nothing about the Twitter story, and and I said, well, I mean, apparently there there's got to be. I mean, we can go back and play that if we choose, but um, but I did punt today. And I punted today because I don't want to beat the guy up for coming on the show every single week. And I thought the topics were very timely mm -hmm. and very serious. A Twitter's still there. James Baker's name is still out there. That there are going to be some developments this week that I think will accelerate some of the storylines. Um, we're, what, two and a half weeks away from the Republicans taking control of the House. So it's not going away. And at some point in time, Decker and I are going to be, I mean, he's going to be forced to talk about it, not under my terms, but under the terms of what's news or what's not. Now, the, the conversation about weighted voting and the fact that someone lives in Lake City, has a big business, a lot of interest in Florence, but doesn't get to vote in the city of Florence election, I mean, that could be Orangeburg Sumter, and I know it happens. We've heard it happens. But we talked about weighted voting, and a caller called and he said, Ken, we already have weighted voting. I mean, you, you've even said that. You've even said how you can uh, probably call the mayor quicker than I can, call your representative quicker. Than, I mean, it, that's some degree. I mean, yeah, but that, that's a very, I mean, that's a fair argument. And that's the, I mean, the, look, guys, I don't have all the answers. I have a lot of the questions. I mean, I've got the busy head syndrome. The busy head syndrome's real good at, at, at creating leading questions. It ain't real good at coming up with answers. Um, and that's where I need you folks. So, so because we disagree on the periphery, about, you know, weighted voting or not. The reason I throw that out there is because I have faith in you to kind of um, begin a discussion that leads to, I, I, I don't know, Rev, makes us all better at the end of the day. You better understand it. I better understand it. We may agree. We may disagree. We may agree and disagree on some of the same issues, and that's perfectly fine. And that goes back to the untapped potential that I think talk radio has. 
I mean, that, that is the, the room I think talk radio has to grow, engage people and have provocative, interesting conversations, not reaffirming, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I agree with everything you said. Uh, you're, you're the best thing since sliced bread. No, let's, let's go there from time to time. I think it makes for better radio. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. There, there are some candidates that do anything for attention and notoriety and to prove to their constituents they are in their corner. And then there's Ron DeSantis. And DeSantis seems to me to be the most interesting, inquisitive figure in Republican politics today. Uh, we saw the poll earlier this week: a declining uh, support of Donald Trump, increasing support of Ron DeSantis. But but the majority of Republican voters want Trumpism without Trump. Is Ron DeSantis Trumpism without Trump? Don't have any idea. It appears to me he's the most likely suspect, and he kind of sort of took a step forward in solidifying that standing in Republican politics by basically requesting the impaneling of a grand jury to investigate whether the drug companies, the vaccine manufacturers in particular, have been completely candid and honest with the American people. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is in Miami. Eben, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Is that a proper articulation of what Ron DeSantis is attempting to do? Well, yes, I think the premise needs a bit more expanding. However, the, the statewide grand jury is something that uh, the a governor here in Florida can request uh, to do any kind of fact-finding mission, and he's used them before. He used it uh, after the Parkland, Florida uh, high school shooting to... Uh, see where things went wrong and if uh, if powers that be were ignoring or failing in their their role to keep schools safe and whatnot um and he has a a background as a fact finder and investigator and prosecutor he was a military prosecutor he led investigations while he was in the congress so it's not really out of uh, character for him to do this and uh i don't know if it's really fair to sort of characterize it as a uh uh, as anything other than him doing his job, there have been people, not necessarily you've said this, but other people have said, well, he's he, now we know he's running for president. Well, no, I think he would be doing this even e- even if the, the presidency were not on the horizon for him. Uh, he's also not said that he's running either. So uh, I think we should sort of keep it in that vacuum, in that bottle for now, and look at it as as a governor doing the job of seeing whether or not uh, either federal agencies or the pharmaceutical industry was being fully honest, uh, and if there were any kind of efforts to fully um, suppress or scuttle any opposing viewpoints that might have stated that uh, these vaccines, specifically the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna products, were not universally safe and effective, and if there were some parts of the population that should not be getting them or or whatnot, uh, and, uh, and how that potential malfeasance might have affected everybody. Eben, has he used a particular data point to go down? I mean, in other words, the Public Health Integrity Committee he's appointing, um, I guess that's to counter some of the U.S. Center for Disease and Control and Prevention, but is there a particular data point that he believes is the primary reason we need to impanel a grand jury? Well, there have been plenty of, of papers published, and of course, everyone talks about the Great Barrington Declaration, which was uh, organized by some very, up until, you know, two years ago, very well-respected physician professors uh, whose words were at least welcomed at the discussion table. We're talking about people from Stanford and Harvard and Oxford uh, who uh, were not necessarily just bloviating online. They were presenting well-researched opinion that was peer-reviewed that came to different conclusions 
than the, uh, the, the everyone else at large to say that these vaccines were either necessary, especially for children, or safe, especially for children, or if we had a good understanding of what the long-term implications of taking these vaccines would be for uh, for a majority of the population. And uh, a lot of that uh, a lot of that discussion was, like I said, scuttled. Uh, and uh, many other states, although Florida didn't, had these very stringent vaccine demands made of people, uh, and uh, especially, especially children. Uh, here in Florida, we did not do that. Uh, and uh, there are people looking back at the past few years saying that that might have been the right way to go. That is very well explained. Evan, thank you for your time. Have a great day. You do. You know, and, and when you really break it down, I mean, here's the point he's, he's trying to make. Was the CDC more interested in advancing narratives in support of a political agenda, or was it about evidence-based medicine? Evan, Evan just said, I mean, Evan's a journalist. I'm not. I mean, I'm an opinion monster. I mean, I'm entitled and, and allowed to say about what I choose to. If, if, if we were in the business of allowing certain evidence-based medical opinions to be prohibited, from being allowed to the conversation, then this this grand jury will serve a great and legitimate purpose. I mean, once again, um, I don't I don't know that it's wrong. I want to be careful here because I'm not an expert. Should the CDC be allowed or not to advance a narrative? That's a fair question. Should the CDC be allowed to um, stop one somewhat of notoriety and credibility from being involved in an evidence based medical discussion? You see where I'm headed? I think mm-hmm. there's two things here. I think we get we get real caught up on advancing a narrative. CDC advanced a narrative. Duh, duh. It's a government agency. Right. I mean, don't there government might be a- some politics. Sure. I mean, they, now you said it. I mean, that's exactly where I was leading. Um, the CDC is a government agency that answers to politicians. So if the political body, almost in unison, wanted to advance a narrative, that's not surprising. But that's not real unusual. It's like a lot of liberals from San Francisco were suppressing conservative opinion at Twitter. Duh. I mean, really? Okay. I mean, I'm surprised by that. You mean Twitter's located in San Francisco? Ninety-nine point six of their six percent of their political contributions were made to Democrats. You think they might have been adjusting their algorithms to suppress conservative opinion? and amplify liberal opinion. So I don't know that there's a problem there. I don't know. Now, we wish that weren't the case. And I wish CDC were more trustworthy and less inclined to be in bed with a political agenda or not. But I'm not surprised by a government agency advancing a narrative. What I am surprised by is a government agency disallowing an evidence or a discussion about evidence-based medicine between experts who believe one thing and another. And I think that's what Ron DeSantis is going to find. I think DeSantis knows he's going to find that there was a narrative advanced. And it might have been, it might have been um, in, in America's best interest. Not, it might not have been in America's best interest. But I think once they dig a little bit deeper, he's going to find out there was a very, um, that there was a very organized effort to make sure we didn't have a debate between doctors who believed one thing and doctors who believed something else. Scientists who believed one thing, scientists who believed something else. Researchers who believed one thing and researchers who believed something else. And that goes back to my point, guys. You would expect CDC to be somewhat political. It's a government agency. The, the, the medical profession has to rely on evidence-based medicine. And if it begins to not rely on evidence-based medicine, what is it relying on?
I mean, is, is it really banking on this is in the best interest of the American people because the evidence shows it is? Or we don't need to allow for this debate to happen because Americans have, may have questions about this advance, about this preconceived narrative. To me, that's the fundamental issue in play. And, um, and that is Trumpism without Trump. I mean, if DeSantis swings this, and let's say we, we, we um, subpoena records and documents, and we find out not only did CDC advance a narrative, CDC was complicit with the media in, in, in making determinations about whose opinions were allowed and whose were not. I mean, that's where it really gets scary or freaky or funky to all of us. Nobody's going to be surprised if there was a narrative, some preconceived narrative that CDC got behind as a government agency, right? I mean, they're, they're, that shouldn't surprise anybody. I mean, the majority of people who live in Washington are liberal. I mean, they just are. Why? Because they're for big government. Why are they for big government? Because they work for the government. I mean, there's kind of a natural inclination for those people to be supportive of parties who want to grow government. I mean, if, I, if, my, job is in, um, if my job is in hauling dirt and there's a political party who wants to prohibit hauling dirt and another who wants you to, force, you to be forced to have loads of dirt in your yard, guess what political party I'm supportive of? I mean, that's that self-preservation thing we talk a lot about. But, but did we or did we not intentionally disallow credible and influential opinions who were contrary to the preconceived narrative that the government wanted advanced? That is the crux of what I hope you're saying. Did that come from the DC? And the did, CDC. It come, did it come from I don't Well, I mean, I think it came from the president. I mean, I think you're going to find out the White House. And, and I mean, I, I think Pfizer, Moderna. I mean, these companies, I think everybody was in bed together. I think this is going to be the classic illustration of how that world works. Brought to you by Pfizer. Follow the money. Let's go to the phone. Raleigh and Lamar. Good morning, Raleigh. Hey, guys. It's Raleigh Fingers, but there's no handlebars today. Good deal. Hey, Raleigh. Frowny faces. They turn into frowny faces on days like today. Um, I apologize, but I want to back up to the last half hour to the Social Security debate. Mm-hmm. Um, 42 years old. I figure I've got 25 more years of work ahead of me. And my retirement plan includes $0.0 from Social Security income. Um, for 10 years, I've just figured I better plan to not have it than put it in my plan. Um, I've also... Uh, I've never heard anyone speak of this, but if someone ever came out with a plan that said, all right, you're in your 40s, 50s, whatever, and so far you've contributed, let's say, $70,000 into Social Security, would you be willing to accept a check, and we'll put it in your 401K or IRA or whatever, for pennies on the dollar? Let's say seven thousand out of seventy thousand. We'll give you seven grand, and you'll never receive a dime of Social Security, but you will no longer have to pay into it. I would take that deal in a heartbeat, and I'll take y'all's comments off the air. Thank you, Raleigh. So you're talking like a business guy now. You start <laughs> making deals. You barter. You broker. You negotiate. You um. You start thinking outside of the box. I mean, that's what government has to do in relation to this. And I think you're a smart man at your age. To believe there won't be any social security benefit available by the time you get to uh, eligibility age. And now we'll say this, I've thought of that before, you know, w- what is the deal to be made to, um, to get social security back on a track of solvency. And, um, I mean, we talked a lot about that being the, um, 
the transferability of Social Security. I mean, imagine the wealth generated in this country if Rev were able to leave his Social Security contribution to his kid, you know, his, I mean, eventually his grandkid, and that grows. And, I mean, it, you know, you really don't need the government if you've got your own personal wealth. And um, But, but the, the, the lack of being able to transfer that from one generation to another, I mean, it's a check. It's basically an annuity. You get a check until you die, and then the, you know, the benefit goes away, and you kind of start from scratch after that. But I do believe that at some point in time, creative minds in the government, if there's any left, um, <laughs> will be forced to deal on behalf of Social Security. We will ask younger people, okay, your benefit equals $700,000 over your – nobody knows when you die, but I'm talking about projections and actuaries. So we take the actuary, and the 42-year-old is going to live to be 88 and he retires at 72. So there's 16 years of retirement. It costs this much money. we got to set aside $700,000 to fully fund your retirement benefit. We don't have it. We just don't have it. Would you take 10 now? Would you take 15 now? I'm asking our young listeners. We know our demo. I mean, our demo's 35 and older by and large, but, but there's some younger than 35 listening. We know that. Would you take that deal? I mean, you get your Social Security statement, and it says you're going to get two grand a month. You know, by the time you reach 72 years old, whatever that number is for the younger generation, I think mine's 70. I think I fully, I get full benefits at 70 years old. Um, if you're 40 years old, 35 years old, the likelihood of you getting your full benefit is slim to none. And slim just left town. Um, would you take a deal? W- would you allow them? I mean, would you barter, would negotiate? Um, is that in the country's best interest? Is that in the financial statement of America's best interest? Th- those are kind of interesting um, ponderances of which to consider. But um, you've got a caller just called and said, yeah, I would I'd take it. I've done the math. I know that um, more likely than not, there's not going to be anything here. And, and once again, guys, um, in the macro, I mean, we're talking about DeSantis and an election, excuse me, a, a public health integrity committee. And did um, let, let, let me answer this before we even get to an impaneling or grand jury. Did the, pharmace- did the pharmaceutical industry mislead about the efficacy, not the effectiveness, the efficacy of the vaccine? Probably. Probably. Why? Money. Money. But let's give them a little deference. They were in a very complicated place. They were asked to do something in a year that they normally have 10 years to do. I- I'm not saying I'm sympathetic to misleading or lying on something as important as your personal health, but I get it. I mean, I understand when the government's breathing down your neck about, you know, creating a vaccine, finding a vaccine, got to have a vaccine. If you don't, the world's blowing up and falling apart and never be put back together again. I get that that sort of reaction. But, but the Dr. Fauci's of the world were, were instrumental in disallowing a serious debate amongst public health experts, not, not yours truly. I don't have any business in that room. I mean, I need to report on what happened in that room. I need an accurate accounting of what they talked about in that room so I can, you know, tell our audience the way we kind of sort of see things. But I don't need to be in a room when they're talking about evidence-based medicine. Pretty damn good at the advanced narrative part of it. Um, but, but we didn't have those meetings, Rev. We weren't allowed to have. I mean, Dr. Robert Malone is one of the co-founders of the science behind the mRNA virus. Dr. Malone was deplatformed at Twitter. He was censored by the major news work, news networks. I mean, the guy that invented or co-invented the technology, the scientific technology behind the vaccine because it didn't jihad with Pfizer. 
it didn't jihad with the advanced, excuse me, the predetermined narrative that was going to be advanced. And what does DeSantis find out? Don't have any idea. How hard would the pharmaceutical manufacturers fight against? I'm not talking about it. They can't stop him from impaneling a grand jury. They can't stop him from forming a public health integrity committee. They can push back against what needs to be made public or not. I mean, I would imagine, I mean, if I'm Pfizer and, and there's a lot of research done on this vaccine, I don't want that research in the mainstream. I mean, that, that would be, what am I trying to say? Trade secrets. You know, I want to keep those trade secrets privileged to, um, you know, Pfizer. I mean, maybe Pfizer knew how to mix particle A with particle B to come up with particle C and particle C was better than Moderna's particle. I don't have any idea how that works. But I'm saying, to me, there's some information there that does not need to be made public. I'm talking about the scientific work behind the scenes. But 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 did the CDC and the NIH advance a narrative? Absolutely. Was the government part of advancing the narrative? Absolutely. Was the narrative misleading at times? Absolutely. But who was responsible for disallowing the evidence-based medical debate that was essential to we the people making judgments about whether or not we're allowing that medicine to be jabbed into our arms. If Dr. Robert Malone is allowed to sit in a room with people who are advocating for, I mean, let's take two scientists from Pfizer, two medical experts from Pfizer. Dr. Malone asks questions they don't have answers to. The narrative has to change then, Rev. The narrative has to be, hey, a lot of questions about this vaccine. Myocarditis, 18 to 39-year-olds. You see where I'm headed. So, so, you know, can DeSantis find that out? I don't know. But if he does, if he succeeds, he's the nominee and he's the president, period, period. I mean, if you swing for the fence like he is and you hit the home run, I mean, you're in like Flynn as far as I'm concerned. Take a break. Back in a minute. And for those trying to make this a political argument, it is a political argument or debate, but it's not about Republican and Democrat. It's not about conservative and liberal. I mean, there, there's a libertarian leaning bias to this because my body, my life, I, you know, government doesn't get to tell me what to do with my body. And my, but the, the argument I'm trying to make, please understand, is not about R&D. It's about a preconceived narrative that needed to be advanced because there was a lot of money to be made. It's not about ideology. It's about money. Remember yesterday, we talked about the military industrial complex and the Cold War and the war on terror and then um, China. And, you know, how do we address that? The, the, the point I make, guys, we get real caught up in these ideological disagreements. I mean, I believe one thing and you believe something else. And we think everything, uh, every emotion is generated out of that small government, big. No, the, the narrative was because there was an enormous amount of money to be made. And that's when you start blocking some experts that deserve to be a part of this evidence-based medical discussion. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not blaming the liberals for this. I mean, I'm blaming you know, the companies that have a lot of influence over government in making sure this narrative was advanced, that everybody needed to be vaccinated because for every vaccine, there's another dollar put in the bank of, um, of Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. Let's go to the phone, and then we'll go to Mike Nunn of the Florence County Sheriff's Office. Jeff in Florence. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Hey, Jeff. You're, you're, you're right. This is not a uh, R versus D. This is a R versus R because if you truly believe that Ron – DeSantis wants to get to the bottom of this. What year does he start his investigation? The timing of a politician. Uh, no, no. He, he starts investigating. 2020? Before. Yes. He starts investigating Operation Warp, Warp Speed. He starts investigating who developed this vaccine, who pushed this vaccine, who, who disbanded in May of 2018 
the global response team to the United States for pandemics. Do you, do you know about that? Yeah, the emergency declaration allowed them to basically skirt around some of the um, uh, some of the requirements of medical research. Oh, government requirements. Yeah, right? government requirements. Yeah. Okay. So who who did Trump did that, right? But but are you and saying that the Democrats it had nothing to do with this? I mean, is that kind of what no, you're? No, no, no. I, I I'm okay. saying that if 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 you believe Ron DeSantis really wants the truth, you go back to 2018. Because that's when Donald Trump and here's a name for you, Michael Bolton, dismantled the U.S.'s global pandemic response team. Okay, is that your is that and, your point? Well, my my, do, are you okay with that? Is that where you should look for the truth? But it doesn't matter what I'm okay with. I mean, the floor is yours. Have at it. I mean, we're not having a debate. Yeah. You know, you make your points, and then well, I'll, I'll kind of make my points. To... Right. So so the thing is— I said before you, you went on the air, this is not an R versus a D. That This is about it, the money and about how much money can Pfizer make, how much money can Moderna make, how much money can Johnson & Johnson make if they disallow some of the evidence-based medical experts that may disagree with advancing a narrative that was already predetermined, preconceived. I, but, but we just determined that the government waived that requirement. And how many Democrats raised their hand in opposition to that? I, I, look, I'm, what I'm saying to you is, did Trump do anything wrong? I'm saying no. What is Ron DeSantis going to say? But I think he's doing what a postmortem. I mean, I, I think, what, what I mean, fine. okay, why did we disassemble that panel? Why did we um, keep, keep the emergency declaration in place? But we couldn't call it a vaccine because it hadn't been, I mean, it hadn't done all the testing. It hadn't been vetted. It hadn't done, done the clinical trials and all these other things that the government says it has to be done for it to be declared a vaccine, an approved drug. Um but, but I mean, the dip, to suggest this is all a Republican problem, I just said this is much, much a Republican problem as it is about the money. It's about the influence yeah. money has in American politics and what Big Pharma can get done if they choose to all be in lockstep. So, so again, let's, let's, let's be clear. Everybody was okay with the government, and I'm not saying this name, Waiving the regulations and using Operation Warp Speed and throwing the full weight and, and financial backing of the U.S. government behind this re this development of these vaccines. It was it should have taken 10 years. Does this any of this sound familiar to you? It should have taken 10 years, but I did it in one year. Look at how many lives I saved. Is that all a lie? No, that's true. 100 percent true. Okay, so you can't have it both ways. I'm now not trying to have it both upset. ways, Jeff. You're, you're, you're making an interpretation of something I'm not saying. I'm not trying to have it both ways. You and I are arguing the exact same thing. Follow the money. I think that's what you're saying, but you're trying to figure out no, a way I, to throw Trump under the bus, which is what you do no, every it, time you call into this not, show. Not, it's always Donald Trump's it. fault. No, I, it's, it's not. I, I just told you he did what he should have done. We had a global pandemic. But but should we well, not be held oh, oh, but but Jeff, stick with me for a second. Okay, he did what we think he should have done. Yeah, but no but but don't that. don't we deserve to have some accounting of what we did? I mean, doesn't the doesn't the American public ha have a right to understand why the government and some of these um, pharmaceutical companies did what they did, or do we just let it slide and say we got some things wrong and some things we got right? And maybe we'll try a little harder next time. Yeah, and and look. I'm all for this, but my point to you, and, and this is what I'll bring up, is 
It didn't start in January of 2021. Totally agree. And and if and if and if you honestly want the answer, and and this is where I think you guys are going to be quite shocked, what Ron DeSantis actually is looking for. Okay, because he's not he's he's while he you you think he's looking at Fauci. Did Fauci make the decisions? No, one man and one one group made that decision. It was it was it was uh, Redfield. It was it was the the government signed off on it. Donald Trump took credit for it, and I'm not blaming him. I understand? I'm 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 putting it at the feet of the people who did what they needed to do to help get a vaccine. And whether you agree or disagree that it saved lives, I mean. It, the, the reality is, if Donald Trump would have won in 2000, we wouldn't have one discussion about this. You you realize that, right? I think you're wrong like, there. I think there was always going to be an inevitable discussion about what was done right, what was done wrong, and did we intentionally mislead. I think you and I agree that there's going to be natural mistakes made in the process. It was a complicated matter. 100%. Nobody's going to get everything right, Democrat, Republican, Independent. Nobody's going to make every decision as it should be made in real time dealing with a pandemic. But did were things done intentionally to mislead the American public? I don't care if that's a Republican or a Democrat, liberal. I don't care if it's Trump or Biden or whomever. Anybody that wants to find out if anything was done to intentionally mislead the American public, I'm in support of. And right, right. now, Ron DeSantis is the only guy on record saying that's what I want to do. Yeah, and, and, and so uh, just, just be careful what you wish for there because I, I think that that plan – when, when they suspended normal requirements for drug authorization and testing, you know, th- this, this is why your opposing view doctors weren't in the room. Can you, can you at least acknowledge? I'll acknowledge that? some of that. Yeah, I mean, once, they, once the guidelines were stripped away, yeah, there, there was concern by some of the experts to not want to be associated with a looser and flimsier way of vetting medicine. And is that not part of that 10-year process that was absolutely just scrapped? Yeah, but, but Jeff, we've got to know what was the motivation behind the looser and flimsier. Was Pfizer in the room? Were they profit-motivated? Of course they were. And they didn't have a meeting in Washington without somebody from Pfizer or Moderna in the room advancing a narrative that their vaccine is better than anybody's. It needs to be mandated. Uh, the government needs to pay for it. That's the questions that I have we that do I don't think we've it. ever seek the answers to. Jeff, I got to take a break. I'm sorry, my man. I mean, I always give you plenty of time, but Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's Office, has a badge and a gun, and Jeff Dutton. So I want to make sure the guy with the badge and the gun doesn't get frustrated with the host of this radio show. So, Mike, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good morning. <laughs> Mike enjoys some of the lively spirited debate. He's a lawyer, um, formerly, and, and now with the Sheriff's Department, giving legal advice. But, I mean, being a lawyer, you're always interested in debate. Certainly. Yeah. It's, a, it's the soul of what we do. Yeah, it is. It's the uh, it's the business I'm in. And Jeff's a good caller. And uh, I, I don't know Jeff. Never met Jeff. I'd like to because uh, I think we could opine on some certain things that we would probably agree and disagree on. Hey, um, we're talking about law enforcement, talking about the holidays. P- people are real sensitive. Of um, it, it's, it's, it's darker earlier. We're not always in our same routine. We're at a party. We're shopping. My wife's going to run to Hobby Lobby. How many times have I heard that? I'm running to Hobby Lobby. I said, let me go with you. But because there is a predatory element out there, Mike, that waits on people like that to, 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 to be in um, not-so-normal circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate there are those out there who would take advantage of this time of year. 
with people who are distracted and, uh, you know, thinking about other things and other people in the season and, and all those things. Um, it's unfortunate they're out there. Um, but the good news is with a little bit of common sense and situational awareness, you can avoid the vast majority of those types of things. Have you guys staffed up? I mean, if you guys, I mean, if there's bad guys listening to the show, I want Mike to tell you why you better behave. <laughs> Have you guys made other adjustments? Well, uh, certainly at this time of year, uh, we increase our patrols. There's some visible um, uh, law enforcement out there, um, and then there's some that you don't see. So um, we're in the parking lots. We're in the neighborhoods. Uh, we're trying to keep an eye on things, and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, again, with the cooperation and a little bit of uh, uh, common sense uh situational awareness uh practices uh we'll all get through this without a problem so what can we do i mean what, what do we need to be aware of i mean if i if i'm somewhere and i notice something suspicious i don't want to be a snitch but but do i need to let law enforcement know that something just doesn't look or smell right well certainly that but uh before that um we would hope that folks would uh exercise some uh, awareness of their surroundings um uh where are they? Um, who's around them? What are they doing? If something doesn't feel right, it may not be right. And so uh, just pay attention. You know, the, the, the crooks actually put uh, people through an interview process before they make them victims. You know, they look at them. They see, okay, is this person paying attention? Do they see me? You know, they can't really victimize you until they get into your personal space. So if you, if you don't let anyone that you don't know in your personal space is it's pretty hard to uh, to become a victim. So uh, keeping track of who's around you and what are they doing, those types of things, that, that goes a long way toward uh, uh, keeping us from being victims. If we're aware, if we look people in the eye, um, chances are the crooks will say, no, nah, I can't really, uh, can't really uh, get in that person's personal space to surprise them and shock them into doing what I want them to do. Um, so uh, you can avoid those types of things. You know, if, you, if you're walking down the street or in the parking lot with your earbuds in listening to tunes or talking on the telephone or not paying attention to who's around you, guess what? You just became a prime candidate. Um, you're low-hanging fruit for the folks who want to get in your personal space. So, um, again, just exercise some, uh, some situational awareness and, uh, you know, Chances are uh, you'll you'll fail the victim test with these folks. Mike, and as horrific as it looks, you see some of these big cities and the crime problem in some of these big cities, the elderly, you know, the, the vulnerable. But I mean, if you're a criminal, why would you why would you go after somebody six one two hundred twenty pounds who goes to the gym every day? I mean, you naturally want to find a weaker or a perceived weaker person out there. So if you are a female, if you are elderly, if you have some sort of condition or ailment. I mean, I, I got to believe you're more likely to find problems if there's problems to be had. Well, certainly, uh, being female does not necessarily mean that you're helpless. Correct. Uh, you know, <laughs> I know plenty of uh, of you clean that up for me. Good, thank you, Mike. Who can uh, who can hold their own and are uh, really capable of uh, uh, taking care of themselves. And so, want to put that aside, regardless. There's a, a perception of height, weight, strength, age disparity that uh, also goes into the uh, to the calculus of the crooks. I guess the the the, the more um, the the more 
age you have, the less size, strength, uh, and mobility, probably the more vigilant you need to be and uh, take, uh, take steps to uh, keep yourself from being a victim. That's the key to this thing. You know, <clears throat> the, we're a call away. You know, the, we're coming. You know, if we get a call, but the old adage is when, the, when seconds count, the cops are only minutes away, never more true. You know, we, we all have to be in some ways our own first responders. And, um, and so our best call time may not be sufficient for you, but we're on the way. And that's good to know. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all our listeners. Again, thanks again this year for allowing Sheriff's Office to come on and, and, and help us get our message out. Well, as long as you got a badge and a gun, you're welcome, Don, whether we, whether we want you on or not. Thank you, Mike. Now, Mike Nunn, Forest County Sheriff's Office, wishes everybody out there listening a merry and safe Christmas. Stay safe. Back in a minute. Welcome back. 843-661-0937. Sonny Collins, South Carolina Highway Patrol. We're scrambling. We're scrambling. Sonny's here. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, How's everybody? You, you're lucky I don't have time to talk football because we're kind of by, we're up against a hard break. Oh, we can always make time for that. But, but Sonny, Mike, Mike was talking a lot about the holidays. I got to yep. believe that that's, that's where you guys are paying closest attention to now. Yeah, we're in the Sober Slammer uh, campaign right now, which basically runs from tomorrow through uh, the New Year's. Uh, unfortunately this week we clicked over we had our 1000th fatality hmm. monday night so uh we we've reached a thousand again in our state which is we look to be lower than last year but unfortunately last year was a record-breaking year for fatalities so um we're going to be out there for this sober slammer because when we talk about christmas you talk about new year's the focus pretty much goes exclusively to drinking and driving because you know we've got holiday parties family gatherings uh we were just talking about football we're gonna have bowl games right on through the first of the year uh, New Year's Eve. I mean, it's just all packed in here. But Sonny, is it fair to say that that the person who can't control their drinking is one thing? That's right. The person who can, but during the holiday season gets a little festive. Um, yeah. Does that make? I mean, I'm not saying there's two kind of DUIs because there's not. Right. But in all honesty, there's a person who drinks a lot and drives a lot, and then there's somebody who doesn't do it except the holidays. But they both count equally. You know. Uh, there, there are seven stages of intoxication, and, and the one we normally see is called euphoria. And, and it's not a drunk person, but it's that middle, middle-of-the-road guy. And the big thing with that stage, uh, they've, they've proven you lose that critical judgment. You know you probably shouldn't do it, but you get out there and try to make it home when you probably should have made a ride. So uh, plan ahead. Don't wait till you get to the party to make that decision. And, and what sort of adjustments are you guys making? Will there be roadblocks? Will yes. there be stops? Will there be um, a, a kind of an intense effort to make sure we keep drunk drivers off the road? Yeah, all, all the above. Every trooper is going to be out, uh, as always, during the holidays. But we, you will see road checks. Uh, we will be saturating areas where we've typically seen uh, alcohol-related crashes. Uh, so you're going to see us on those high-visibility roadways for sure, and probably more, and definitely more of us. So uh it's all about making good decisions, and uh, that decision is going to cost you. Sonny, what do we do if we see? I mean, I, people don't like to be snitches, but you yeah. have a responsibility to society. If you see somebody who's a danger oh, on yeah. the road, well, what do we do? Uh, make sure you call, uh, whether it's Star 47, which is Star HP, come straight to us, or 911. I mean, because that is a life life or death situation. That person you behind us impaired could veer off into the other lane at any moment, could run off the road and hit a tree. So uh, we work with the Florence County Sheriff's Office and all the surrounding sheriff's office, the city police. If we don't have a trooper nearby, we'll we'll, we'll work with them to try to uh, get that car intercepted and get it off the road. But if somebody is drinking and trying to get home, th- there's a pretty good chance they're going they're going to run into law enforcement. Yeah, you're going to see us between because like like Mike said, uh, we all work together and uh, we're all going to be out there because 
it's all about keeping everybody safe and getting you home safe, uh, whether whether uh, you're coming from a party or family gathering. Do we have any data to compare? I mean, when you guys look at a successful holiday season, do we have any data to compare it to? Yeah, we look every year to year. We look at uh, where where the crashes were last Christmas. Were there any roadways during New Year's that we saw high high crash areas or high high DUI arrest? And that's what we want to focus because we we use that GPS on all of our wrecks, our tickets, everything we do, so we can identify these roadways right away. Okay, behave is what you're telling people. Absolutely, and have a merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I mean, you guys aren't there. They don't wake up every day hoping with a burning desire to write DUI tickets. No, we okay. we wish we didn't have to write a single one. But you do. We do. You ain't write me one. I can promise you that. <laughs> I'll find me a ride home if I do decide to partake in some um, in some um, festive atmospheric conditions. Thank you, Sonny. Yes, sir. Thank Merry you. Christmas to Merry you. Christmas. We'll take a break. Now, are we taking a break now? Uh, yeah, I got about 10 seconds. Okay. Did you want me to sing Born to Run or something? No. Okay, fair enough. No. We'll take well, a break. You could say something about Tigers. No, we won't. No. Oh, Sonny's got on. a badge and a gun. Oh, come and he's a Clemson fan. Not messing with him. He loves running. Take a it break. In. Back in just a minute. <laughs> I still go back to the realities. When I was in politics, once again, state level and, and local level, we budgeted. We had budget meetings. We passed a budget. We had an introduction, a second reading, a third reading. The budget was finalized. We appropriated funds. The federal government, for whatever reason, and I'm trying to better understand it, and, and I'm a bit sympathetic. I understand the bipartisanship and the confusion, but I mean, it's continuing resolution, the stopgap, it's omnibus. It's um, it's get us to December 23rd and then maybe get us to October uh, 15th. Someone who may be able to make heads or tails of this is on um, Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern. Jared, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Good morning to you. So what well, is the good. latest? That, that was a, not, not, a bad, uh, not a bad explainer, actually. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in all honesty, I, mean, I, I feel like I have a decent understanding of the way government works, having been in the local level and state level and sure. appropriating and committees and, you know, formulating plans via disagreements and agreements and bipartisanship yeah. and, you know, one party's in the majority. But I just don't, for the life of me, understand the rationale behind not budgeting, but rather doing continuing resolutions and omnibus bills and stop. Help us yeah. understand it, Jared. Well, yeah, I mean, an omnibus bill, you know, appropriators were tell you is appropriations. What they're going to try and do is take all 12 appropriations bills that they should pass um, throughout the year and, and sort of merge them into one. So appropriators will tell you that that work is, you know, a product of, of ongoing uh, negotiations, right? That, that this has been a year-long effort. But you are right that they haven't been able to do that. They have not had bipartisan agreement. And, and the reason that they have to do an omnibus is it's the end of the year. Uh, Congress is about to end. Time's running out. And, and they don't have time to pass 12 different appropriations bills. So they're going to do it in the one called an omnibus. But before they do that, uh, they're going to need more time. Uh, current government funding uh, which, by the way, is running off of a continuing resolution, as it has for a couple of years now, um, is uh, set to expire uh, tomorrow night. Um, and so the House yesterday uh, agreed to um, a stopgap measure, extending that deadline until next Friday, the 23rd. Uh, the Senate will likely do the same today. Uh, but they did so with the understanding that an omnibus bill uh, is going to be ready um, very, very, very soon. That that both uh, sides here, Republicans and Democrats, have agreed uh, to sort of the sticking points that had been holding this up, mostly the top-line numbers. Uh, the federal budget is divided in two ways. It's divided between defense spending, which is a huge portion, obviously, of our budget uh, of our spending, and non-defense spending. And Republicans and Democrats have long had this sort of understanding with one another that uh, they want those numbers to, to be 
you know, parity with each other, that the non-defense spending, it's the same amount of money as defense spending. Uh, obviously, there are some adjustments made for, you know, weapons programs or, you know, COVID relief or whatever, right? But the, traditionally, they try and keep some parity there. What they have been sort of disputing is whether or not that parity uh, should be counted towards past legislation. And, and one of the concessions that, Demo- that that Republicans were able to get from Democrats is that some of the increases in domestic spending, non-defense spending, as it relates to COVID relief and the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, would count towards that total. In other words, defense spending in omnibus could be higher than non-defense because of the other spending that had happened, right? And so that was part of what uh, they sort of agreed to. They got additional defense spending as well through the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. So now that all of that's taken care of, they have the issue of whether or not it can pass both chambers. Um, and what's been fascinating this week um, is the dynamics amongst Republicans. Senate Republicans and House Republicans have very different views on on this omnibus. Listen, Senate uh, Republicans are going to remain in the minority. Uh, Mitch McConnell has said that this uh, agreement, this uh, long-term, year-long funding bill, is a good deal, the best deal that that Republicans are going to be able to get, given the, the circumstances that exist in Congress. Yesterday, the top House Republican, Kevin McCarthy, had a news conference where he blasted this deal and basically accused uh, Senate Republicans of uh, selling them out. Uh, Why would you agree to something like this, such a long-term deal through the rest of the fiscal year in the late next year, when in three weeks Republicans are going to be in control of the House and be able to have a much bigger uh, say here in in the spending and appropriations process? And so it's set up a a little bit of a, a rift here, not between Republicans and Democrats, but between Republicans in the House and Republicans in the Senate. That's, a, that's a, as, a, as well as I've heard that explained by anybody, Jared. Thank you very much for the explanation, and thank you for your time. Thank you. That was really well explained. I mean, that walked you through some of the nuances of discussion at the um, at the federal level. And he's right. I mean, they, they're, they're beginning to really take public shots at one another. Ah, that's unfair. McC- McConnell's not taking a public shot at anybody. McCarthy's taking shots at McConnell, trying to solidify his support as um, candidate for speakership about um, passing an omnibus spending package that will fund the government through, I think it's October of 2023. And McCarthy wants it funded until about mid-January, maybe February the 1st, when the Republicans take control of the House so they can stop some of the excessive. Which makes um, sense to me. But why is McConnell doing what he's doing? I mean, McConnell's probably got a deal. I mean, McConnell probably has some um, political favors in his pocket so if McConnell can shepherd some of the Republicans to support, it becomes a bipartisan bill and it gets done through October and then whatever they owe McConnell, they'll make, I mean, McConnell's an old hand. I mean, he's not doing this out of the goodness of his heart. I'll assure you of that. I mean, if Mitch McConnell's going along with this and then McConnell would be accused of being a part of the uniparty. You know, he's one of the, um, he's an establishment yeah. Republican. There's no difference in an establishment Republican and a Democrat. There's really not. I mean, in all honesty, but it's just basically fueled some tension between the Senate and House GOP leadership, McConnell and McCarthy kind of um, representing House and Senate leadership. And, um, and, and McConnell's arguing, and the, and the way he argues, that McConnell's not being helpful. His criticisms are not helpful of uh, his effort to try and pass a year-long spending package that will avoid a government shutdown and allow for the government to be fully funded through, I think, October of, uh, of next year. And I don't have any idea. I mean, to me, McConnell wins because McCarthy's not the speaker yet. 
I mean, power to be mm-hmm. is not like power in your hands. And McConnell has a pretty good reputation in the Senate of being willing to cut deals with Democrats. Now, we don't like that because we don't think Democrats cut deals with Republicans. And I do think it's a one-sided ordeal, and I think McConnell's been taken advantage of. But that's how he rolls. That's, that's kind of how he goes. And what McConnell's done a good job of is finding the senators who aren't running for re-election. I mean, if the last vote you take as a member of the U.S. Senate is to fund the government and pass this omnibus spending bill, and you don't have to look your voters in the eyes ever again, your loyalty is to Washington. And, you know, next thing you know, you're a member of Augusta National or you're a, um, a lobbyist at one of the pharmaceutical companies. I'm just saying that's how the game is played, guys. I mean, they're chits. You get so much, and uh, you, you can you can kind of cash in so many, and you can um, get the discount rain on some others if you true to or choose to be somewhat of a cowboy or a character. And, um, and McConnell has found these Republican senators and Romney, because Romney just goes along and gets along. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that Mitt Romney was our nominee a couple of election cycles ago. I mean, it really and truly is. I when I when I look at the, ah, the I mean, I get the persona. I, I mean, Romney's a smart guy. Uh, Romney's been successful in the business world. Now, now, we can dispute the way he was successful in the business world at Bain Capital, but it's hard for me to believe that the party is where it is today. And only two election cycles ago, Mitt Romney was the nominee. I mean, it was Romney and then McCain and then Trump. So, to, you know, a couple of election cycles ago, Mitt Romney, a centrist, you know, um, a, a centrist, moderate um, establishment Republican, as centrist and moderate an establishment as they come, was the nominee of the party. I mean, it, you know, and now we're, we're, we're looking for Trumpism without Trump, so to speak. Some of you are still looking for Trump. And I, I don't have any idea what Trump's announcement is going to be today. John He's Decker. Big announcement. And, and Decker knows. I mean, Decker will say, I'm led to believe. You know, I have a source. Well, let me, Decker knows. So if Decker says there's going to be a Trump announcing he's coming back on Twitter, that's probably what's happening. And if you think about Trump in today, uh, in today's political world, he needs to be visible. Trump has been somewhat of a forgotten man. Now, now in truthfulness, Trump being somewhat forgotten ain't always bad because he doesn't get a chance to say, um, say things that, you know, offend half the country or um offend a lot of independent voters i read some polling earlier this week about the number of independents that would never vote for trump again that now that's a poll i mean we're finding out the hard way that you know polling is complicated it's not incredibly accurate but um but the polling saying that independence is ba- basically said i got no problem with trumpism i mean i don't i mean i have no problem with america first in fact i'm a little bit intrigued by the notion of putting america first you know, manufacturing and business and all these other things. But I just don't want that guy anymore. I mean, I'm tired of him. I'm worn out with him. So if Trump gets back on Twitter, now, now I'll give you an interesting example. Last night, my daughter and I were talking, sophomore in college. Um, probably a little bit different because her father's in politics, host a, a radio show. She has a kind of a keen interest in politics, been around it pretty much all of her life. So um, so my daughter says, when I'm arguing about, she said, did you see what Trump said? I said, no, because I'm not on that social media platform. And she said, he needs to be back on Twitter. Why does he need to be back? I mean, that gives me an opportunity. Why does he need to be back on Twitter? Because we care what he says. So a sophomore in college wants to know what Donald Trump says. Hmm. She misses his opinion. She misses um, his uh, pronouncement. She misses the fact that he'll stir it up a little bit and, um, and say things that provoke. 
some sort of response. Now, you know, um, can Trump rehabilitate himself as a political candidate? I don't know. I mean, it's a long time. Does Trump have the discipline necessary to execute uh, a year-and-a-half campaign, a two-year campaign? I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, Has anything in Trump's life demonstrated that he has the ability to fully discipline himself and meet marks and meet numbers and, 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 and listen to people who know this world better than he does? I mean, I understand he's got an instinct. I respect that. I understand his instinct's been wrong more than, excuse me, been right more than it's been wrong. But but the landscape is different today. The majority of people he won't devote that he's asking to vote for him believe in his theories. I mean, they they believe in what he stands for. They think he was a damn good president. They're just tired of that. They're they're fatigued of, you know, Trump always involved in some sort of political brouhaha. Can Trump discipline himself? to a point where the people that appear to be questioning whether or not they want to be a part of that again, can they reconcile? Uh, it's a lot of people. I mean, when you talk about independents and Reagan Democrats and some of the moderate Republicans, I mean, we know how they bailed. Well, I mean, we know what happened to the four Senate seats that Trump was heavily involved in, and there's no way to escape the reality Trump had something to do with that. You've never denied that. I mean, you're, you're probably a little more Trumpster than I am. You've never denied that, that Trump is to blame at some level for what happened in Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. I mean, do you accept some responsibility for him um, maybe causing at least one, two, uh, two of those to not win? I mean, a split would have been okay. I mean, if Trump wins Arizona, I mean, excuse me, if Trump wins Nevada, wins Georgia, loses Pennsylvania, loses Arizona, I mean, he did about what Republicans normally do. I mean, you're not going to win all the toss-ups, but you can't lose them all. You can't lose all the toss-ups if they without actually, being dinged a bit. If they actually lost well, I mean, Arizona. You know, but... we can argue about Arizona all you want to, <laughs> but the same thing is going to happen in 2022 that happened in 2020. Sure. There's been a certification. Um, Kerry Lake's not going to be the governor. Um, Blake Masters is not going to be the senator. So, I mean, we, we can argue about voter, um, voter harvesting. We can argue about, you know, the new reality, the new normal of American politics. But, but in, in truthfulness... Trump's not the president, and we've got a Democrat senator in Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Georgia that we thought we had a pretty good shot at splitting those. I mean, I think I went through some of the data. I mean, I'd convinced myself because of the the, uh, disapproval rating of Biden and the right track, wrong track number. I had myself convinced that three of four is the most likely scenario. I never could convince myself that Dr. Oz could win in Pennsylvania. I mean, I think if we archive some of those shows, uh, Freehold could go back and play when I said, because you would ask me, why Pennsylvania? Because I understand the apparatus to some degree. I understand the infrastructure Democrats have built in voter harvesting and in absentee ballots and unsolicited absentee. I mean, I knew that combined with a guy named Dr. Oz. Right. But then you saw how bad the Democrat nominee was. The guy with the stroke who couldn't talk, who did a late debate did terrible in the debate. So then you said, well, maybe there's a chance. I don't, yeah, well, I mean, you're right. I mean, when I saw the debate, I was more optimistic than I ever had been because Fetterman was a man just totally confused. I mean, he was in, it was just, I mean, his, his cognitive abilities were obviously significantly diminished. And maybe he gets better. And in all honesty, I hope he does. 
I mean, I don't wish John Fetterman to remain like he is. I mean, I hope five years from now, Fetterman can speak as I'm more fluid leave than I can, but, but I hope he can, you know, carry on a good conversation. I hope he can do the job that's required of him to represent the people of Pennsylvania. I don't wish any ill on John Fetterman at all. Um, but it was obvious he couldn't do the job, but he got elected anyway. And, and when you go to Walker and, and Georgia, I mean, Herschel made a lot of missteps because he's a political novice. He's a football legend running for Senate. I think Herschel came across as authentic and believable, but I, but I think people kept waiting for another, just give me a little more, Herschel. You know, give me a little bit more about what your job will be when you get to the Senate. And he never did. He just never, I mean, it's like everything Walker did on the football field, he couldn't quite do. I mean, if Walker needed three yards for a first down, he'd get three and a half. You know what I mean? If, if you needed him to jump over three men to get a first down, he'd jump over four. I mean, he was fiscally gifted in that fashion. And, and you needed that, that, that same gift, Rev, that we'd always seen. The people of Georgia had always seen Herschel come through because he's Herschel. And, and they kept waiting. And they kept waiting. And when he didn't win, with Kent winning by eight, if, if, if Walker didn't get to 50% while Kemp got to 58, he ain't getting to 50%. I mean, the coattails at Kemp. When, when Kemp runs, I mean, Kemp campaigned for Walker. I mean, he went to bat for Walker. I mean, he stuck his neck out. He really got involved in the runoff. But Kemp's name on the ballot created momentum for moderate Republicans and independents to go vote and give the Republican the benefit of the doubt. And when a, not enough of those gave Walker that benefit of the doubt, I knew he had trouble. Because you and I talked off the air one day, and I said, he's not going to win. I mean, I don't think he loses by six. Like some said he would, but he's not going to win. I mean, Georgia's not that blue. I mean, I damn, Georgia's not, you know, um, California. I mean, it's still a real competitive state. And um, so, so to believe that Walker was going to lose 54 to 46 or 53 to 47, I mean, I never saw that coming. 52-48 was kind of worst-case scenario in my book, and it ended up, what, 51-4 to 49-6 or something, some, about a point and a half-ish, somewhere thereabout. But, um, but when Walker didn't get to 50 while Kemp got to 58, you just kind of saw that writing on the wall that Walker, there's no way he gets to, to 50% of the vote. And then in a, uh, in a runoff, you don't have the third-party candidate, so you got to get to 50. You know, you can't win it with 47, 48%. you got to get to 50% of the vote in some of these um, plurality elections. But, um, but you're right. When Fetterman, when Fetterman exposed himself, as he did, we kind of got a little bit giddy. Mm-hmm. Not giddy that John Fetterman struggled. I mean, I don't think anybody took joy no, in John Fetterman. I mean, I think we're all, I mean, I, you know, even the liberals, I think we're all at some level decent human beings. And nobody likes to watch anybody struggle as Fetterman did that night. But, but I still went back to the infrastructure, the voting harvesting, the unsolicited mail-in ballots, and the guy he was running against was named was Dr. Oz. That, that just always led me. I thought Masters was going to win in Arizona. I thought Laxalt was going to win in Nevada. I mean, I really tried to convince myself we're going to have a Republican governor in Arizona, a Republican senator in Arizona. We're going to beat an incumbent, an astronaut. We're going to, uh, you know, win a seat in Nevada and kind of a overwhelming, not overwhelming, but maybe 53-47. And, I mean, you know, nothing panned out as we thought. And there's no way you can look at those four Senate races and say Trump's not in some way, shape, or form partially responsible. I think it's unfair to blame Trump for everything that went wrong in the midterms. I mean, Trump cuts both ways, right? I mean, it, a lot of races he was associated with, the person won, but they were majority Republican districts that were won in the primary. In other words, when Trump endorsed, they won the primary. 
there's a 90% chance they're going to win the general because of the way the district has been gerrymandered. But in the four statewide races where Trump was most invested, he went 0-4. And, and that's when a lot of people said, hey, well, we got we got to get off this wagon. I mean, this wagon has carried us a long way down the road. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a crazy ride. We've upset everybody that we need to upset in Washington. We may not have executed the change we thought we were going to, to execute, but we've really shown them that we're here and we're not leaving, not going anywhere. Um, are the voters ready to pass that baton to someone else? It's obvious Trump's not because he's announced he's running for president. And we, we think today he'll announce he's coming back on Twitter. So Trump, un, under any circumstance or under no circumstance, is willing to pass that baton. But will he be forced to by losing to DeSantis in a Republican primary? Interesting question. I'll ask you this. Is there another Republican not named Ron DeSantis that could beat Donald Trump in a primary? Is there a second suspect? Can anybody other than Ron DeSantis beat Donald Trump in a Republican primary a year and a half from now? 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Someone texted me during the break, and I actually wrote it down on my pad before we took the break. I mean, I can give you another name, Elon Musk. I mean, Musk is not a natural-born citizen. Musk has never expressed any interest at all in running for public office. But Elon Musk is a political phenomenon. I mean, he's a cultural phenomenon. Um, he's probably the most interesting man in the world. And right now, all the, li- the liberals hate him. Well, I mean, and that right makes now. him. Well, that makes him more attractive to you know conservatives sure. and Republicans. And um, I mean, Elon Musk is a kind of an island uh, of his own right now. I mean, having done what he's done, and once again, manufacturing you know electric cars. The left loves him, colonizing Mars and space exploration. Uh, the left loves him trying to um, energize an economy without hydrocarbons. Uh, you know, the left loves him. And all of a sudden, he buys Twitter and says, look, let, let's everybody have a say. You know, let's let everybody participate. Don't have algorithms deciding who gets amplified and who gets suppressed. And the left just piles on in a way not imagine. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe how quick the left. I had really get You should have expected how quick the left turned on Elon Musk. And now they're finding out he may have he may have cussed in the eighth grade or something or may have, um, you know, cheated on a paper in the fifth grade in some school. I mean, that's just what the left does. Well, you see what they're talking about now. They want to go over his citizen application, there citizenship you application, you know, with a fine-tooth comb and find something he may have answered incorrectly, and they want to revoke his – he's a dual citizen, right? Yeah, he's got dual citizenship. Um, but but talking about who could potentially beat Trump in a primary, I mean, if uh, let me ask you this. If Elon Musk <laughs> and Donald Trump were in a Republican primary, who do you vote for? You're see, torn. Yeah, I, I mean, you're I torn. And see, it's Elon has so much money. I mean, it's just not even a, almost fair in a way. But, uh, I mean, Trump still deserves my support. Okay, so. fair enough. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike. Hey, good morning. Uh, they, uh, you got some great ideas out there, but without a doubt, Elon Musk is a national treasure, even though he's uh, got dual su- citizenship in South Africa. But he's an African-American of some note. And I think uh, I, I, don't, I don't see any way he could ever be president. But I think he could. He, he is a force for uh, good at this point in our history. But the thing that um, you were talking about finances and the terrible debt situation we're fa- facing 
uh, facing down at this very moment. And uh, one of the things you could do to save a couple of trillion dollars is uh, just uh, uh, start getting rid of a bunch of useless regulations and uh, departments in the federal government and put some of that uh, money and energy back into the national economy because you're losing you're losing uh, economic horsepower every time you put these regulations out there. Basically, uh, many of them do nothing except hinder the economy and hurt the ordinary people. And yes, I I think uh, DeSantis is the only one right now that that has a notoriety or has uh, demonstrated the uh, uh, character that uh, would be needed to become president. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Um, it, it's in, we're looking for, I mean, it's almost like the American public are more interested in a, in a, ah, a personality. I mean, it was just the politics of personality. It used to be the politics of a policy and agenda and ideas and, and ideology uh, the Reagan revolution was a set of ideas and values and beliefs. I mean, obviously Reagan, Reagan was a charismatic figure, but he wasn't a cult icon by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, Trump is a political phenomenon that I think has changed the way we decide who gets to run for president or not. I mean, once again, if Matthew McConaughey announced today that he was running for governor of Texas, who laughs and who doesn't? If Oprah Winfrey said, I'm thinking about running as a Democrat for president of the United States, if I'm Joe Biden, I'm, I'm, I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. I mean, we, we live in this. I mean, we, 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 we gravitate toward interesting personalities. We've always done that. But we thought, you know, running for office was where it stops. I mean, yeah, he's interesting and he's charismatic and he's dynamic and he's a lot of things. I mean, he'd be great on the speaking circuit. You know, he'd be great representing a business in the advertising world. But he doesn't need to be near the levers of, levers of government. I mean, that's too sacred. That's too important, too consequential. Don't let people like that near the levers of government. And all of a sudden, people got so frustrated with the ones we had trusted with the levers of government, they'd prove it to be not as good as we expected them to be. So all of a sudden, the public says, I'll give them a try. Give him a try. Give her a try. Well, they didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't work at the Supreme Court. They didn't go to law school. They're not a member of the National Guard. Who gives a damn? <laughs> I mean, I think they can do better than those that we have in charge now. I mean, everybody now is a member of the Guard. They paid for a Supreme Court justice. They went to law school. I mean, they've got checks in all the boxes. Government sucks. Let's give some of these people who aren't as decorated or don't have as impressive a resume, let's give them a shot at it. Why? Why should we do that? I don't have a good reason. You know, when you try to intellectually rationalize your support of Trump in 2016, I mean, help me do it. I've had friends challenge me. Why did you support Trump in 2016? when I consider you to be a reasonably, reasonably intelligent man, and I've always said I can't articulate an intellectual reason I voted for Donald Trump. I think he's a narcissist. I think he's a son of a gun. I think he's a scoundrel. I think he's a rascal. I think he's a lot of things that I don't want my president to be. But you know what he's not? He's not one of them. And if that's not intellectual enough, I'm sorry. But he's not one of them. It was as simple as that for me. I mean, when you said Trump is a rascal, yep. Trump's a scandal. Yep. Trump's a, um, Trump's a, um, Trump's a deadbeat at times. Yep. Trump's a, um, a, a guy who's played the game and in the most loosey goosey way. I'm at. Yep. Trump's a philanderer. Yep. Trump's a narcissist. Yep. Trump's an egomaniac. Yep. So how can you vote for him? Cause he's not like the rest of them.
Give me the guy, not like the rest of them. We are almost infatuated with those people who we perceive to be not like the rest of them. Everything said about Coach Mike Leach over the last two or three days since he died at the age of 61, every basically tribute that I've heard any former player, former coach, former associate say about Mike Leach, he was different. I mean, I, I don't know why, but he was just different. Why was he different? He was a character. I mean, he walked to the beat of his own drum. He didn't do things the way everybody said they had to be done. He didn't play college football. He went to law school, graduated from Pepperdine Law, never played a game of college football. Ends up one of the most successful college football coaches of the modern era. And I don't mean wins and losses. I'm talking about the effect or impact he had on the game. Um, NFL scouts, NFL assistant coaches went to wherever Mike Leach was coaching to watch him prepare his offense in the way he did. Why are we so interested in Mike Leach? Because he's different, right? I mean, why are we interested in Steve Spurrier still? He's different. We, we, we seem to be attracted naturally to those different people. But we, we, we've historically said, okay, you can be different coach football. You can be different and host a TV show. You can be different and host a radio show. You can't be different and be president. You can't be that different and be a senator. Can't be that different and be a governor. But I think they that they have almost forced our hand. Until they be the establishment. I mean, we, we, we have found them out. I mean, they've been exposed as not anywhere near as talented, smart, efficient, proficient as we, or, or they've really imagined themselves this. We never really did that. But what we bought into the notion of that these people like Trump, they can't go but so far. You know, the Mike Leaches, the, the different ones, that they can't go but so far. And and I think we broke the mold. And, and I think and look how they fought against Trump when the, when the voters did do that. But it was an indictment, Rev. It was an indictment against everything they have trained us to believe. That, that's what Trump was, guys. Trump was the anvil, I mean, the wrecking ball. I mean, he was the he was the um, the indictment. They had told us forever that this world is so complicated, people like Trump can't understand it. And all of a sudden, Trump gets elected, and it appears that he knows what he's doing. <laughs> he was really I mean, good at it. Really good at it. I mean, he didn't prepare, as historically we've been told you had to, but he's pretty damn good at the job. And all of a sudden, there, we, we find out there is no wizard. There's a man behind a curtain somewhere playing a game with information, playing a game with, with data, playing a game with narratives. And all of a sudden, the, you know, the, the wall is, or excuse me, the fraud has been exposed. And Trump, people like Trump, I mean, we, I will live long enough to see another person or two like Trump get elected. I mean, J.D. Vance got elected to the Senate. Blake Masters nearly got elected to the Senate. Uh, Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz. I mean, think about, I mean, if I'd come to you five, ten years ago and said, hey, Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz have a pretty good chance of winning Senate seats. Not, not House Senate seats, but U.S. Senate seats in Georgia and Pennsylvania. You'd have laughed me out of here, and you should have. Mm-hmm. But but now, Dr. Oz, he might win. Herschel Walker, damn good at football. He might win. And they nearly did. Let's go to the phone. Here is David in the PD. Morning, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, I appreciate you, my man, for just great Christmas time memories. You're talking about that J.C. Penny catalog. Uh, did you ever have a chance to go to the J.C. Penny on Main Street in Columbia back when you were a tyke or a ute? Man, Columbia was like Mars to me. We, we didn't travel much. If we, if we got to Florida, well, that, was, a, that what, was about man, as big a deal as it was. Yeah, there was a J.C. Penny on Main Street. This has been around, I think they moved to Columbia Mall back in 78 or something, but there was one downstairs. Man, I think about Trump. He went down the escalator. 
man, you went down the escalator at that doggone J.C. Penny. That catalog came to life. I mean, it was you just saw all those toys in real life that that you saw in that catalog, and it brings me to. When you talk about pull the wagon, ride the wagon, you remember to me who made up that phrase in politics was a guy named Phil Graham. I remember Senator I Graham. Remember that name. Yeah, Congressman. I mean, he was a senator from Texas. From Texas. Yeah, yeah. And his name his was spelled G R A M M. And I'm gonna leave you at this, man. I was thinking about that. You either pull the wagon, ride the wagon. Here's a problem with today. Uh, in this virtual world, we're either watching the wagon, we're Googling the wagon, we're Facebooking the wagon, we're Twittering the wagon, we're Skyping the wagon. And that's even worse than somebody riding the wagon. They're just sitting around watching things and not doing things out in public. They're not physically doing stuff. And when, when you reverse this algorithm, it ain't going to work out too good. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. David touched on something. I had a conversation yesterday with a friend about the, you know, the masculinity factor. I mean, I don't know if that's what you call it or not, but the fact that we're kind of, um, we're being very critical and harsh of, of masculinity yeah, in America. Work, there's a phrase called toxic, toxic masculinity. masculinity. And I was talking about, you know, in the workforce, how few men, you know, that there was a day that men went to work. They worked with their hands, the sweat of their brow. Some men still do, but nowhere near as many. And I wonder how much of that has contributed to a, um, a decline in masculinity, uh, a decline of the, um, uh, the, the, the alpha male. I mean, I think when um, we, we were an economy built on, on really hard work, we made widgets, we manufactured things. I mean, I still believe America at its best is when we make things that we can see. They're tangible. We're not shuffling paper across a desk. We're not, you know, a Zoom conferencing, talking about our business plans or models. We got people punching a clock, going to work building cars, building tractors, you know, um, uh, uh, welding and cutting with a cutting torch. I mean, I, I still believe that that's essential to who we are. It's in our DNA. And it seems that we have, I mean, I know we've got less and less and less of that. We talk about the manufacturing jobs that have left the country and why they've left, left the country. But I think other than, I mean, it, it's not just an employment number. It's not just a manufacturing sector. I mean, it's a, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, there's a component of masculinity involved in that. I'm not saying you can't be a real man and shuffle paper around on a desk. You can't be a real man and stare at a computer all day. You can't be a real man and have two million Twitter followers. I mean, I think you can be a real man. You have to be a real man to do the other. You can be a real man and do some of these things. You have to be a real man and do what was required of real men back in the day that I wish I lived. I mean, I, I'm leveling with you. I told you, <laughs> I, I told my wife one day recently, I think I was born 100 years too late. And she answered with two, 200, 100 years. <laughs> yeah, okay. Take a break. Back in a minute. I don't want to get preachy and super biblical, but uh, the Bible says, asking you shall receive. We asked yesterday, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. Um, we were talking about being behind a bit in our season of giving, a tribute to Mr. Frank Avant, who Rev and I both agree or, you know, one of the people responsible for me being on this radio. Mm -hmm. You're stuck with me because of him. Um, but Mr. Avant was one of the most charitable and, and, and giving and generous people I've ever met in my life. We came up with an idea a few years back of how to pay respect to his legacy, to, uh, to kind of a tribute to his life. Uh, we talked yesterday about being behind. We're not behind anymore. 
but I want to be ahead. I mean, I really and truly want to make sure we um, don't leave any stone unturned in providing the youth mentors of the PD and Boys and Girls Club of um, the six families they've identified who have no idea of the Christmas heading their way. Um, we were behind yesterday. You folks stepped up in an amazing way, big day helping yesterday. us catch up, and um, and we're good. But I don't want to just be good. I mean, I want to get ahead of the game, so I'm asking once again, and I try to be careful, but I, you know, personally, I don't ask you for anything. You don't owe me anything. I mean, I owe you a good job in the morning, and I try to do that, and some days we nail it, some days we miss the mark, but you forgive us, and we move on, and we connect again the next day. But I want to make sure that these ladies who are willing to give of their time to go shopping for these six families have what they need to fill these lists, and it's not list of Lamborghinis and Ferraris. I'll assure you of that is some of the things that we take very much for granted. We're getting real close to the last few days of these ladies being able to go shopping. So I'm asking to find it in your heart, if you will, to help wake up Carolina. You're kind of part of our family, whether you want to be or not. Pepsi of Florence is our presenting sponsor. I'm going to try to get Les to come by next week and really kind of elaborate on why he felt Pepsi needed to be as involved as they have. I mean, they're involved in everything we do. Specifically to this, they've made an extra commitment to make sure we're successful so season of giving a tribute to mr frank avant um kind of um representing our family rev can tell you better than i of how you can make a contribution it is very easy just go to live 953.com and click on the season of giving banner right there on the page that'll take you to our season of giving page and there's links there there's a big green button says donate click take care of your business there if you want to see the list of items for the families that we're shopping for there's also a link to check out that list and we did have a big day yesterday some some sizable donations and we appreciate it from the bottom of our hearts. No this question good, about it. It's a good thing. Thank and once, you so and, much. And once again, Pepsi of Florence is our title sponsor, but Redbone Alley, Pity Electric, Florence Toyota, Mr. Sparky, Benjamin Franklin Plumbers, Trinity Auto Glass, Victor's, Walk Up Electrical, Anderson Brothers Bank, Stoudemire Dowling Funeral Home, Swap Payment Solutions have all stepped up and contributed to help us make this a, uh, a success. So, um, yeah, a lot of us take Christmas for granted. I mean, I know I did. My kids do. We should be ashamed of ourselves. Rev and I were talking about what it used to cost and what it costs now. Um, and the ladies that do the shopping told Rev it's a lot more expensive yeah. out there to buy things than we Inflation anticipated. Is real. Inflation is real indeed. Um, and you folks have stepped up. I'm asking you to do it for another uh, few days. Let's kind of stay focused on making sure we have um, the, the proper resources to provide for these six families. And look, they don't know this is coming. I mean, they don't have a clue what's heading their way. They expect a less than stellar Christmas because of you and your generosity. That may change. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.